Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere where with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus you're listening to an airwave media podcast christopher media let's make some noise the doors you want to go to the rocky horror show tomorrow night that sounds great. It starts at midnight, so you better check it out with your mom. Get her permission. I don't know where you are in the house at this precise moment, but run and get your mother and tell her why she should go and see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's like orange juice. It's like everything you've ever known that's good for you. See the Rocky Horror Picture Show, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. Whatever happened to Saturday night, we spent it here recording this episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is another unconventional conventionist, Mr. Rob St. Mary. You know, I never thought I'd look good in fishnets, but, you know, now, ooh, watch out. On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we would like, if we may... To look at the cult film favorite, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Released in 1975, the film was initially something of a flop before it found its audience, or its audience found it. Since then, Rocky Horror has been playing in theaters around the country and around the world ever since. It's the story of Brad Majors and Janet Weiss, two young, ordinary kids on a night out that they'll remember for a very long time. After their car breaks down, they visit a castle where they meet a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. From there, all hell breaks loose as we see said transvestite, Dr. Frank N. Furter, build his creature, the titular Rocky Horror, dispatch his former lover, Eddie, played by Meatloaf, and corrupt the morals of Brad and Janet before the castle and Frank's domestics, Riff Raff and Magenta, return to the moon-drenched shores of transsexual in the galaxy of Transylvania. That's the film in a nutshell. It's kind of a pastiche of science fiction, comedy, horror, and all with an amazing set of songs and sexiness to go along with it. So, Rob, this was your first time seeing Rocky Horror. I am so curious. I've been dying to ask you. Please let me know what you thought of the film. Let me just back up and tell you that I have seen clips. You know, I've seen the Time Warp sequence. Um, I know kind of what it was about. Um, you know, there are certain things that are in pop culture that you get from it. And uh, so I knew kind of those things, but I had never really sat down to see it because there, it was sort of like of two minds. One was it seemed to be a film that people had said doesn't work well 
as a film. It works better as an experience. You want to watch it with a bunch of people. You want to go and throw the toast and do all that other stuff that you're supposed to do. And uh, since I had never had the opportunity to go to the theater and have that experience, sort of like throwing spoons at the screen when you see uh, the room, uh, I decided that I wasn't going to watch it until I kind of had that experience. So um, I would say on my initial viewing – I agree. It just didn't work for me as a film film. There are things that I like about it, and each viewing since has kind of grown on me. So kind of going in cold beyond just knowing certain elements, it didn't hit me as much. But seeing it three times in two different versions, uh, it has grown on me, and I would like to have that you know that communal theater experience like when i saw the room the first time and um you know everybody's having fun with it as opposed to trying to watch it and go oh my god this is horrible which i don't mean to disparage rocky horror by equating it to the room i was just talking about the best way to view it is probably in a theater with a group of folks that is how i saw it the first time they used to show it at the fairlane theater Back when it was, what, UA uh, Fairlane, movies at Fairlane, before they started calling it UA Fairlane. Uh, I used to go on Friday nights with uh, my fellow band geeks, and it was quite an experience. There was no toast throwing or throwing of objects of any kind. Uh, They had kind of outlawed any of the throwing or the squirt guns or any of the other paraphernalia that you're supposed to come along with, but... um, yeah, I went to see it quite a few times. There was a lot of audience participation. They had the group up in front of the screen who are called Shadowcasters in some parlance. And it was quite uh, remarkable. Yeah, and I think uh, part of the reason why that stuff was eventually um, scaled back in terms of what they would allow you to do or bring to the show and, and not being able to throw stuff is that those screens – if they get dirty, they're hard to clean and they're very expensive oh, yeah. to replace. So, I, I had read online that you know after a few had been damaged severely, <laughs> uh, they're like, "Yeah, we're not going to let you do that anymore." So, um, yeah, when I was working at the Star, somebody threw a pop at one of the screens, and I don't know why they never did anything about it, but it was just like you could just see that pop letter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every time you would fade to white or had any sort of bright lights going on, it's like, yep, right there, I can see it. Yeah, I mean, part of the thing with those screens, just to, you know, get more into that, is that they're not a solid sheet of material. They're basically made up of a bunch of tiny holes. And uh, when you look at it up close, if you ever work in a theater, you would, you know, you would see that. And part of that allows the the sound to actually come out from behind the screen. So it's a very um, technically expensive thing. (laughs) <laughs> well, and people don't realize they're covered in pixie dust. Exactly, you know, and that shit takes a lot to harvest. I mean, there's only uh, you know a couple of pixies around the world, and um, and they supply all the dust. So you know, the film for me, it, it's interesting, kind of how it starts out, and so you have this whole scene in the beginning with this wedding, and and this is where we're introduced to Barry Bostwick and uh, Susan Sarandon as Brad and Janet, and. And then it, it kind of takes a leap for me, and, and I realize that this structure probably has more to do with, with the stage play. But I felt that it was weird to open with a scene and then go to the narrator who we keep seeing on screen, and he kind of you know walks us through and explains what's going on. 
I kind of felt like it was out of place. Like the narrator should have opened the film, you know, right? Kind of, you know, Chriswell a la Plan Nine. Well, there's kind of a double opening, or really a triple opening, because we start with the lips, mm-hmm. and that's setting up everything. And what I like is that it's, you know, Patricia Quinn's mouth with Richard O'Brien's words coming out of it, uh, his voice coming out of it. So it's it's interesting that we have this kind of play going on right there, and this song really recalling back to these classic sci-fi, schlocky kind of movies. I mean, nothing against any of the films that are talked about in the song, but it's just kind of evoking that 50s atomic type era, which really kind of sets the stage. And then you're right, we go from that into the sweating and then in the wedding, we're already getting this kind of breaking of the fourth wall going on. We have the uh, camera, the guy who's filming the wedding, turning back towards us and looking at us. And we have, you know, folks that are in the know seeing um, Tim Curry and uh, Richard O'Brien, Patricia Quinn, already there, dressed up as uh, kind of the American Gothic couple, uh, O'Brien and, and Quinn there. And uh, I, then, yeah, you're right. Then we go into the narration after we have our first song so it's just like wow you know it, how when is this movie finally going to start kind of thing but for me after having seen it you know a hundred times or whatever it works but i can definitely see you know it's like this is really weird that the narrator comes after we've already set the stage kind of twice yeah and the the other thing is he adds to it and then there's certain sort of breaking of 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 the structure and what i mean by that is is that um he'll sort of set up what's going to happen and then we go into that scene and then in the case of time warp he comes back in and shows diagrams of how to do the dance and all this other stuff so there's sort of this cross cutting between him and what the narrative is at the same time as opposed to all right uh this is where we're at Here's the scene. All right, you just saw that. This is the next thing, scene. So they they have a tendency to bring him in sometimes. And, and sometimes I think it works, and sometimes I think it doesn't, the cross-cutting with the narrator, just from a, a film structure standpoint. And it's interesting that the story has already happened by the time we join the narrator. You know, he's doing this all as the Denton file and being able to look back and he knows everything that is going to happen and it looks like he's kind of pieced together all of the events, you know, as best he possibly could and has you know, photos that he shouldn't necessarily have. There are some scenes that he has that are in the movie, and then he's got, you know, a lot of uh, background on Eddie in there. So it was interesting to me the way that this he's so in the know for everything and just kind of leading us through what's happening and then teasing us as well, that whole, like, or had they kind of thing. It's because, my friends, this story cannot remain quiet any longer. Has been pieced together from the stories of the miserable souls who survived this horrifying ordeal. You know, like I said, Chriswell. <laughs> you know, to some extent, I don't know why I kept thinking Chriswell, but I I really like how there's this mix of things in here. And I, my whole feeling with with Brad and Janet is they're the squares. And I know this is going to be so obvious. They're the squares, and then they sort of meet the freaks. And then they're changed by the freaks. But the question is, is at the end of the film, how changed are they? Will they go back to their normal atomic era 50s 
you know, suburbia, husband and wife uh, living, or will this be such a profound change on them that they have no other choice but to basically become freaks like those that they've interacted with? And I mean freaks in the nicest way possible. The other thing is, is that there's this mix also that although this takes place in some sort of 1950s world, there's, you know, uh, Nixon on the radio. So there's stuff that's contemporary, as opposed to having it be set in 1953 or 54. Well, and the music really evokes the 50s quite a bit as well. I mean, we basically have like doo-wop and shoebop type, you know, refrains going on through so much of this. And so I love that it's kind of 50s music told through this kind of like glam lens, you know, so it's like they are stuck in the 50s. This is the 70s, baby. You got to get on the same page with all the freaks kind of thing. And it's like pulling them along and and forcing them to kind of catch up with uh, with the rest of the world. Yeah, I get that. And I also get that it's about outsiders. It It's one of the, the films that I can think of that – if you really look for it, and it's not that hard to find it, this movie, I would say, probably should have been, if it wasn't, I'd be amazed if it wasn't, on sort of the, the, the top ten greatest films dealing with gay and bisexual and transgender issues. Because the whole idea of him creating, the uh, Tim Curry character creating this this creature uh, of Rocky Horror, who of course looks like, and there's a reference to him being, you know, Charles Atlas and all that stuff. He carries the Charles Atlas seal of approval. He wants to marry him, you know, and he wants to have this this lover. It's almost like Bride for Doctor Frankenstein instead of you know trying to put the monster in the in the Bride for the monster in, in the second uh, James Whale film. So there, there's all of this stuff in there, and then there's sort of this playful fluidity at times with how the different characters deal with be it transgenderism or their sexuality and in the case of i i get with with tim curry's character is that you know he's not just transgender but he's also bi in a lot of ways he would be just off the scales queer oh he'll fuck anything that moves <laughs> he'll fuck a snake if you hold it for him he is all about tasting that forbidden fruit. You know, he is just, you know, as he is talking about in one song, he's giving himself over to absolute pleasure. And it doesn't matter who it is or what it is, but he is all about just, you know, getting his rocks off. Which to me is kind of interesting because this is during the period where, I mean, Rocky Horror comes out in 75, and we've talked about before with things like Boys in the Sand and, and, uh, and, and other films that we've done about Stonewall and Stonewall was in, you know, 68, 69 and era and that kind of stuff. So to have characters like this and this was put out by 20th Century Fox and you know, it's a decent sized budget. It's not huge. I mean, but to have that and to have it be such the success that it was in terms of midnight audiences to me is quite amazing because I don't know, I think you could do it now and people wouldn't bat an eye. You know, back then it would have been interesting to read the reviews and and the audience reaction to the film because of all of that, you know, sort of homosexual stuff. And I know that it was sort of coming out of the free love 60s era, but still even gay people were treated as second class during the whole 
free love era as well. Well, I think they play that up too. I mean, Frank with his inverted triangle on his gown when he's creating uh, Rocky and everything. I mean, that's a direct call to you know a symbol of oppression. That's what they would mark uh, gay people for for uh, concentration camps. So it's just they definitely know this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and, and I appreciate that they're doing that. And you're right as far as like outsiders and everything. I mean. The Transylvanians all travel by motorbike, and that at the time was definitely a symbol of uh, rebellion. You know, even though it was 20 years on past the wild one and everything, it's still, you know, mainstream people are not out there riding motorcycles. Yeah. The other aspect that I got in terms of this thing was that you do have, you know, a gay wedding in there. You have a straight wedding in there. There's all of that. And then there's the scene with uh, with Janet and, and Rocky where they're found together in that sort of, uh, I guess, tank. The rainbow tank. Yeah, and yeah. it's a rainbow tank. And I like thought to myself, I go, well, you know, the, the rainbow symbolism uh, within within the, you know, the gay and queer community, but the rainbow flag wasn't officially adopted until like a few years later. So right. when I saw the film, I go – could that be part of where they got that from? And the other thing that I was thinking about also in terms of design in here is this is definitely steeped in the androgyny and in sexual, you know, gender ambiguity that came with, you know, Ziggy Stardust and, and David Bowie, you know, a few years before it was like 1972. So there was that whole like glam period in the UK, which this was created in what it was seventy four was when it was first performed and you know on stage and then it became a film or seventy three around there. So all of this comes out of that glam era where sexual ambiguity was you know used for shock value. It was used to you know to to get people's attention to sort of play with these ideas at that time. And I think it does really well, but the other thing that it also sort of adds to in here, and I was looking at the the wardrobe that Tim Curry has at one point with the with the leather jacket and he's got the patches and the pins and the buttons and all that stuff, is I go, that in another year, in seventy six would be the quote-unquote stereotypical punk leather jacket. Exactly, and there's a lot of discussion as far as the Rocky Horror phenomenon, the play and everything started in London, and it's like taking place right down the street from, you know, Malcolm McLaren's sex shop and everything. And there's like, did Sue Blaine with her production design and her costumes and everything, did that kind of inform punk before there was punk kind of thing? And people can debate that all the live long day, but it was definitely felt like to me pulling from the same menu. And I also think that being this kind of British invention, not just punk, but talking about Rocky Horror itself, yeah, there was the New York Dolls, but for me, glam really kind of uh, its its heart was in London. Yeah. I mean, it was more of a British phenomenon, and when it translated over to the United States, Rocky Horror coming over to the U.S., it didn't necessarily do that well. Like it was a disaster when it played in New York, and it had been a huge hit when it was playing in London. So I'm kind of surprised that they even greenlit this as a movie, but that was kind of the thing to do at the time. I mean, it was 75. I think we had already had hair at this point. I can't remember. Yeah, hair was 68. Well, hair the play was 68, but hair the movie, you know, the the Foreman film, and um, 
you know, Jesus Christ superstar. I mean, it's all coming out of that same, you know, set. And when I'm, you know, reading about the, the filmmakers and the, the producers and Richard O'Brien, the composer and the star and all this, I mean, it's everybody is working on these shows. So it's just like, well, he was doing Godspell, then he was doing, you know, hair, and then he was doing, the, and they're just trading back and forth as far as who's doing what on what. And certain people are working in, you know, Australian productions. It's weird that it's like this Australian and British thing going on and just America's kind of left out in the cold. <laughs> but America's eventually, you know, it was the setting of it and they were kind of playing against those American conventions. I mean, I think somebody could write a term paper just looking at the way that other works of art are used in Rocky Horror. I mean, looking at the Mona Lisa, Michelangelo's David with the makeup and everything on him. I mean, the American Gothic, the living American Gothic with Quinn and O'Brien. I mean, there's so many art references in here and just kind of playing with them that, uh, you know, it's kind of fascinating. Well, I mean, a lot of that is, of course, visual shorthand that people would know, but they might not even know the source. They would just be like, Oh, I know, I know what that is. You know, like I, right. I know what it is. You know, they couldn't tell you who painted it, or <laughs> you know, or what the piece of art really is. But it, it, it's these echoes, and 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 that's really what I see. The film is is it's, it's a lot of echoes that have come together and then been sort of twisted in in this uh, sort of glam rock 1950s sci-fi way. That, like I said, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I, I really enjoy it, and I think I'll enjoy it uh, more and for the viewings if memory serves the picture of whistler's mother that the criminal the criminologist has when he's talking about eddie and eddie's mother i want to say that that's actually meatloaf dressed up as whistler's mother <laughs> i could be wrong on that but i mean kind of again mixing this transvesticism with classic art and everything and just playing with these forms i found to be you know really fascinating to see the way that they were doing that in here so it is, yeah, it's this very much this amalgamation of all this stuff kind of coming together and, you know, things that were in the movie, I don't think could have been in the play version of this. I mean, these sets and everything, I don't see them, you know, having these kind of elaborate, the elaborate castle that they had mm-hmm. um, on stage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's definitely things you can do in film that you can't on the stage and, I've never seen the stage production or a version of the stage production. Um, I have I have no idea how they would have approached certain things that are in here. I do like that. I mean, so much of this is Frank trying to make his perfect mate, you know, and you're right about that whole Frankenstein, but making the creature for him rather than for anybody else. And that he kind of starts off with Eddie as almost the the template, you know, and using half of Eddie's brain for Rocky, which I have to admit, the first few times that I saw this, I didn't catch any of that stuff. I mean, when you're watching this at a theater and you've got people just shouting shit all the time it's just like the movie is kind of secondary for a while until you get to see it quite a few more times and then it finally is like oh okay now i get some of these intricacies of the plot as far as columbia falling in love with eddie and with frank and the way that this happened and that happened and you know why eddie had the big gash across his forehead because that's where frank removed his brain from and all this and it's like okay yeah this stuff is finally starting to come together, but um, I, it, 
I do like the way that um, you know he is kind of creating his perfect being and using Eddie, you know, probably the best parts of Eddie, this kind of rebel and everything, but using the the better bits of him for Rocky. It also seems to me that this is the battle of um, mad scientists, although uh, the the other scientist, Doctor Scott, doesn't seem to be as off as um, as Frank is. So you get the idea that maybe he's more of the um, uh, sort of the mirrored counterpoint. And I was watching um, a documentary piece on the one version of the the film on DVD. And there was an interview with uh, Meatloaf. And Meatloaf said that in the stage production, those who play Eddie also play Dr. Scott. And he was kind of like, well, I guess I'm only in like one scene (laughs) in the film. Yeah. And it took me again, it took me a little while to realize that Dr. Scott was a former Nazi scientist. So we kind of go back to that Nazism that I was talking about with pink, uh, the pink triangle and everything, because when they would say, um, you know, in the movie, they say Dr. Scott, or should I say Dr. Von Scott, people would yell, Bon Scott instead of Von Scott, and it took me a long time before I finally was able to realize that you know what had been implied there and what had actually been said, and then the way that he kind of you know laughs it off and everything. Go on, Doctor Scott, or should I say, Doctor Von Scott? Just what exactly are you implying? <laughs> it's all right, Doctor Scott. That's all right, Brad. <laughs> Frank definitely knows that this guy has had this past and that Dr. Scott does not necessarily want to talk about. So I think he might have been more of a mad scientist in the in the day before he came over and, you know, started teaching science at uh, you know, Denton Refresher College or whatever it is where Brad and Janet met. You know, we had talked a few months ago to the author of a cultography book. We talked to Ian Cooper about Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. And it's only fitting, there hasn't, as far as I know, ever been a BFI book on Rocky Horror, but um, there should be. But until that day, and actually, really, if this guy is, is willing to write a BFI book, his cultography on it is already great. Jeffrey Weinstock wrote the cultography book on Rocky Horror, and he has done a terrific job. And hey, you know, he's a uh, local guy, kind of. He works up at uh, Central Michigan University. Let's go ahead and play that interview. I'm curious, how did you get interested in the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Rocky Horror is something that I've enjoyed since high school and college. So it was kind of taking something that uh, I had always enjoyed and then turning it into an academic focus for me. It was a short leap. What was your first time like with Rocky? Yeah, i got to say, the first time I went, I couldn't quite figure out what all the fuss was about. Uh, I went as as a newbie, and I enjoyed the crowd responses, but the film left me a little bit cold, and in fact, I had a, a hard time watching the film, um, in part because people were shouting things out and not knowing the film. I didn't know what lines they were covering. <laughs> you know, it, it's a little bit disorienting, I think, to go as a first-timer to Rocky Horror, because you've been primed to go by a variety of different people, and when you go there, there's a lot going on, and it's hard to pay attention to the film. It took me, uh, I would say... a two or three viewings of the film before I really was able to put the two parts together, to put the film and the narrative and the songs together with what was going on in the crowd. And would you kind of consider yourself to be a regular Frankie fan? I am at this point, absolutely. How did you kind of decide to start writing about Rocky? 
I saw an opportunity, frankly. I teach a course every so often here um, called Introduction to American Popular Culture. Actually, we just do it as an intro to pop culture course. And I had wanted to do something on cult film, C-U-L-T, cult film, and started looking around to see what kind of secondary research had been done, what sort of literature was there. And I was really surprised that there had been almost no attention to Rocky Horror, which seemed criminal to me. Um, So the first thing that I did is I, I... worked on a collection of academic essays on Rocky Horror, which I sent out a a call for contributions and uh, assembled a a number of essays. And then having worked on that, I got contacted then by the editor of a series of books called Cultographies on cult films to do the contribution on Rocky Horror. First three books in that series were the ones on Rocky Horror, on Spinal Tap, and on Donnie Darko. The collection, was that reading Rocky Horror? Yes, that's right. What kind of other things were in that other than uh, what you contributed? It was attention to a variety of different aspects in relation to the film. So there, there's some attention to kind of the, the audience practices, the ways in which audiences participate with the film. There's some attention to the music within the film, just the role that the songs actually play. And then when it came to the cultography, how did you decide to kind of approach this? Because you covered everything from soup to nuts. You went from the structure of the film down into some of the audience participation and then really kind of doing a nice close reading of the work as well. Well, I mean, and thank you very much. That's actually what I wanted to do with it. I mean, it seems to me that what makes Rocky Horror Rocky Horror is the fan interaction with the film. It's unique in that respect. While I think there are some attempts in other places for audience members to become engaged with the film, it really is unique to Rocky Horror, the way that this whole kind of sort of Rocky Horror subculture has developed with with the shout outs and with the, uh, the 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 shadow cast up there in front of the stage and with the props. So that was something that I really wanted to emphasize. What makes the film unique is the role that the audience plays. And then I was curious about what is it about the film? Is there anything about the film that invites that kind of audience participation? Like why did this develop around this particular film? I think it's two things. I think some of it is just coincidence. Some of it's a little bit haphazard. The film was originally released as a big-budget release that, that flopped, and it experienced the new lease on life when it became a midnight movie at the Waverly Theater in Greenwich. And you had a kind of irreverent crowd who went to see those films. And some of it... So some of, some of what developed around it was just haphazard over the course of time, somebody would yell a shout out and then somebody else would laugh and it would get picked up and get repeated. But I do think that there's something about the structure of the film itself that encourages that. There are strange gaps that are inserted within the film. For instance, um, when Frankenfurter quivers with Antissa, there's a space in which he's begging you to say something, patient, um, so people fill it in. There are the moments when he throws a cup of water right onto the camera that almost sort of breaking the third wall, you know, or the fourth wall. So it's a combination of things. I do think some of it is just a, a, a product of chance or just historical circumstances of where the film was shown and who was there and how they interacted with the film. And some of it, I think, is invited by the film itself in ways that other films don't. Now, you've taught um, before on queer theory of of reading films and everything. How do you kind of see this film speaking to what was going on with gay lifestyle at the time and how it kind of was looking back as well? I think at the time it was really an outgrowth of the gay liberation movement and the feminist movement and Stonewall and what what I talk about in the book as being porn chic at the 
early part of the 70s, um, which created the possibility for the film. Um, it's clearly an outgrowth to me of that kind of consciousness. It really does engage, I think, on a number of levels with, with what was going on within that kind of stew of cultural forces at the moment. I, I don't know that it retains its same kind of transgressive value today. I really like that there's kind of the double wedding going on in the film with Ralph and Betty and then with Frank and Rocky later on. It seems like it's kind of turning things on its head in a way. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I mean, you see that kind of that, that kind of turning things on its head, even from the very beginning where, yeah, you have um, the wedding that's taking place, which is immediately replaced by a funeral. And then you've got um, Frankenfurter and Riff Raff who, who are there in their American Gothic pose. Um, right from the beginning. I think your point is very good. Yeah, there's the juxtaposition of the two different weddings. You have the uh, the traditional wedding and the gay wedding as foils for one another. And then also, you know, so much to do with like eating and just kind of um, you know other traditional like family type settings. It feels like and just kind of taking those and and shifting them a little bit. Oh yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, what's for dinner? Uh, meatloaf again, right? Uh, yeah, um, scenes from everyday kind of traditional American life are turned on their head and casually subverted <laughs> um, through the, this kind of pairing of scenes, as you point out, the pairings of the wedding, and just taking everybody sitting around the table. And it, it goes from being um, you know, Sunday dinner to, to being cannibalism. So there, there is this kind of conscious, kind of playful subversion of traditional values that runs throughout the film. I mean, they are reasserted at the end, though, which is kind of where there is scholarly debate about Rocky Horror has to do with how to, how to interpret the conclusion in which Frankenfurter's lifestyle is too extreme, and he's being, and you know, he's obliterated by magenta and riffraff, um, and there's this restoration of order at the end, which seems kind of sad. <laughs> uh, in comparison. Magenta and Riff Raff, um, I mean, what is going on with those guys, the elbow sex, mm -hmm. the brother and sister thing? I mean, talk about a little too extreme. I mean, I think, again, it, it's kind of a, a how can we how can we playfully scandalize more traditional sorts of viewers? What can we introduce into this film that's going to be outrageous? It's a conscious, a conscious attempt to provoke... Uh, dismay <laughs> from more conservative viewers who probably never even saw the film. One of the things that I really enjoyed about your work was the way you were kind of taking things apart as far as the the Pink Triangle and mm -hmm. Dr. Von Scott and kind of that uh, cast of Nazism that was going on over the film as well. Yeah, but I, I call those in the book micro-histories um, that embedded within the film are these symbols, these little objects that come with their own particular histories that uh, an awareness of them, I think, enriches your understanding of the film. I don't think they're in any way vital to, to appreciating the film or enjoying it, uh, but they add a, an additional level of complexity and they, and they work together to make it a more interesting film. The Pink Triangle, which relates back to what we're talking about, the kind of gay pride movement in, in uh, the 1970s. You see it as a marker of its particular moment. When it comes to some of the audience callbacks, at least when I was seeing this back in the late 80s, I was, there were quite a few things to me that were a little upsetting as far as it almost felt a little homophobic, some of the call and response kind of stuff. Did you experience that when it came to what you saw and what you kind of studied? 
I haven't, yeah, you know, it's interesting that you should remark that. It's not something that I talk about within the book. I mean, it does seem to run contrary to the spirit of the film when you think about it. The kind of anything goes, um, no rules approach uh, that the film takes. Um, I do think you're right that, that, some of, that some of the shout-outs and some of the callbacks do scandalize or kind of insult the characters, but it is fairly even-handed, I would say. You know, every time that Brad is there, he's an asshole, and every time Janet's name is there, she's a slut. Yeah, I don't know quite what to say about it, other than that I think the audience looks for ways to kind of playfully insult the characters. It is out of keeping, though, with, with, with the general tenor of the film. Do you know why there were the different cuts of Rocky Horror as far as some version had superheroes and another version didn't? My understanding is that it was the British version that had superheroes and the American version didn't, and it had to do with length. Really? Uh, Yeah, I don't know that for a fact. Uh, I also think um, my guess also is that superheroes is a real downer. Right. And that for marketing for American audiences, they probably wanted to keep it more upbeat. American audiences (laughs) traditionally uh, have less patience with that kind of melancholy conclusion. So what was the reaction like to the Cultographies book? It's been overwhelmingly positive. I haven't read any bad reviews of it. Um, those those who have given me feedback or have, re- or have reviewed it have said nice things about it. I had a great time writing it, and maybe that comes through. You know, I, was, I was taking something that I had always enjoyed, um, and he gave me the opportunity to think critically and to think seriously about it and to kind of develop my own ideas. Yeah, personally speaking, it feels like there's kind of like a few different eras of the cultographies, and yours definitely feels like it's more in the realm of the kind of pure film criticism, whereas some of them, I know it's a requirement to kind of look at like internet reaction to the films. And for me, it's like, okay, that's fine and dandy, but I prefer more of the mm-hmm. the purest film criticism. But yet, having that fun, and you definitely, that does come out in your writing. I, yeah, I'm, I do less with fan studies, frankly, than I do with kind of straight-up film study. And I can understand that, that if, when you have authors who are writing that who come from a different background, who do more with researching on fan responses, might might look more at, you know, internet IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes or those kinds of sites to see what kind of feedback has been provided. And with Rocky Horror, it kind of invites fan response, mm-hmm. but of a different mm-hmm. and type. That's what I, that, I mean, that's the part that I find so interesting, um, is about the way that, that the fans both cherish the film and insult the film simultaneously and show the way that they love it through the insults that they hurl at the screen. And I love the way that things kind of change regionally and the way that the call and response kind of moves throughout, you know, the fandom. It's so interesting to me that something that was around in the mid-70s before the Internet was able to kind of have this almost viral uh, approach of how the the word spread yeah, about I know. this. It has such a nice grassroots kind of feel to it, doesn't it? You know, you have the, the low-budget Rocky Horror newsletter and the Rocky Horror fan club, and the, you could go from place to place and be welcomed as a part of the Rocky Horror community, even though that uh, the kinds of props or events or shout-outs would differ from place to place. Uh, I love that. Uh, it's interesting to me now to see the kind of second life that Rocky Horror is experiencing as a, a weird, I mean, it's a weird oxymoron to say a canonical cult film, but it kind of is. Where yeah. I, I know it shows in the town where I teach, Mount Pleasant, Michigan, it, it comes every year around Halloween, and it serves almost as a kind of rite of passage, I think, for college students to go see it. 
I don't know that it packs the same transgressive punch that it once did. I mean, parents can take their kids to go see Rocky Horror now. I think people sometimes play at being a little bit shocked by it. But it's more of a spectacle. You know, you, you you go to see it because you feel as though it's a rite of passage. You have to, everybody has to see it once. And it's fun because you watch the, the shadow cast and listen to the shout outs. I don't think, in the, I mean, in the era, and at, at present moment in which gay marriage now is a realistic possibility, was it 38 states as of today? Yeah, the themes that are introduced within the films, I think, strike us as relatively tame in comparison to contemporary media. What was your take when Rocky Horror came to VHS and DVD as far as, do you feel that that kind of affected the the cult? I think it absolutely did. And not only did it come to VHS and DVD, but the DVD come with extras so that you can arrive at your first performance of Rocky Horror seeming not like a virgin, but as uh, you know, a longtime Rocky Horror fan. So you can come in knowing the shout-outs, and you can know how to do the time warp, and you can practice these things in the privacy of your own home before you go to the theater. It does change things markedly, whereas people, I think, used to be, you'd have to go to see it in the theater, and it became a kind of event or experience. It's, it wanders it down somewhat, I think. It, it changes it. Well, there's something nice about being able to watch it at home, too. <laughs> it must have definitely helped yeah, out it, your it, research. Um, because I could replay it, and I could make sure that I was getting dialogue right, and I could stop a particular scene. So, yeah, having it available that way is actually really helpful. Yeah, I was recently reading a review of another film and was noticing that the reviewer was calling one of the characters by a different name throughout the entire review. And I was like, okay, this is pre-video era, so I kind of forgive that. But in today's world, it's like you can't get away with that stuff. No, you got to make sure the details are right because somebody else can immediately check it out, particularly if it's up on YouTube. Exactly. se volvió. Escuchen todos los que quieran salvarse. Yo tengo. You know, I talked a little bit about the breaking of the fourth wall. Obviously, the narrator is the biggest breaker of the fourth wall. He's directly addressing the camera. But you also have some other things like Dr. Scott is another one, especially when he you know turns around to the camera and says, I knew he was in with a bad crowd, but it was worse than I imagined. Frank does it just a few times, but when he does it, it's classic. Like when he kind of looks at the camera after they talk about, you know, how their car came down with the flat. And he's just like, well, how about that? And just looks directly at the camera. And then he even throws the water at the camera later on, which I think is going to kind of, you know, it, it helps predispose this film to that kind of breakage with the movie that we're going to talk about in a little bit here as far as the, you know, call and response stuff. 
you know, you were talking about the whole opening up of, and I, I do mean this slightly as a pun, opening up of Brad and Janet, opening their minds to a much larger world with Frank uh, seducing both of them as each other, which is a great scene as far as him coming into the blue room and coming into the pink room. I definitely see Janet embracing this so much more than Brad, and Brad seems okay with it right afterwards, him smoking the cigarette and relaxing and everything, but he definitely seems to be, during the floor show, when he is doing his whole, you know, what's this, I feel sexy, help me mommy kind of thing, I think that he's definitely going to have troubles after the castle leaves. I don't think he's going to be able to necessarily handle this. And I think that that, in a way, is pretty much a good commentary on i would say and this might be stereotypical the the comment that you see between men and women in terms of sexuality and and uh, an expression of sexuality in that way there always seems to be at least in the culture uh an expectation or an understanding that you know you know if, if a woman's bi or has bi tendencies or something like that then that's okay but but men are men, and you're supposed to be straight. And you know, if if you get into the uh, the other way a little bit too much, then in some way it diminishes your masculinity. And I think that in in a way, just like what you just said about the difference between the two of them, and being willing to embrace sort of this more you know queer or you know different expression, is um, I, I think is a pretty good summation and commentary of of that i think it's it's opened up a little bit more recently uh but it's still i think harder for men to admit you know that kind of uh fluidity of their sexual interests i like to see two chicks do it but i don't want to see two dudes do it you know that's right there were the, there was a bit that bill hicks had years ago where he joked about that he goes you know two women is beautiful and all this and it's like and two guys is you know evil <laughs> you know and all this so yeah, i think he was just kind of joking about that whole idea but it's true though i i think it is harder for for men to to express that broader range of, of sexual expression than it is for women, at least within the culture. You know, you're talking about this fluidity of gender and everything, and I think there's also this fluidity of characters and everything. What you had mentioned before, as far as, you know, Eddie will play Dr. Scott. Yes, that is probably a, it's a smart thing to do because you only want to pay so many actors, and there are no two songs. Once Eddie is out of the picture, Dr. Scott is in the picture and never the twain shall meet other than kind of that. Um, I, it's almost like the Titus scene, I suppose, <laughs> where they're, <laughs> where they're eating Eddie at, uh, for dinner, having a little meatloaf for dinner, as it were. But there's also some other fluidity as far as, like I'd mentioned, the American Gothic and seeing Riff Raff and, and, um, I mean, all four of our main Transylvanians. Well, uh, I don't believe that Columbia is a Transylvanian, but you get to see Columbia, Magenta, um, Frank, and Riff all in this kind of more Midwestern farmer-type garb kind of stuff, and then get to see them again later on, all dolled up and everything. I didn't realize until recently the whole thing where Riff Raff really kind of imbibe, imbues three different things where he's there 
American Gothic. He's got the pitchfork. Later on, he's riff. He's got the you know the candelabra at one point, and then finally he comes in with his much more alien look, and he's got the three pointed gun. So I think it's kind of an interesting way that the pitchfork has kind of changed into the gun and everything. So it's uh, definitely these characters are moving around, and yeah, a lot of it is economy of the stage. Some of it just is there for fun. I mean, the whole idea of those characters being at the beginning of the film kind of incognito, that's such a throwaway thing, but it works so well for me. Well, it's also a throwaway thing the first time you see it because you don't really notice it until you see it again. And you really just notice that boom mic quite a bit. I didn't notice the boom mic. You didn't notice the boom mic? No. There's a lot of boom mic going on when uh, Brad and Janet are talking towards the beginning there. Is it like Dolomite-level boom mic? This one would not get a second billing. It would probably be farther down, like underneath the Transylvanians, but it definitely should get a credit at some point. <laughs> and I thought maybe it was just the way that things were being matted. When I would see this at the theater and people would point out the boom mic, I was like, well, it's probably just the matting in the theater. You know, like I've seen movies where the framing has been off and, you know, you get to see the damn dolly and everything. But yeah, sure enough, it's right there on video for all the world to see. And I'm like, you guys didn't fix that for the video release, which I think would have been, you know, violating the sacred text, as it were, if they had fixed that. But it was, I was very glad to see that it was still there. So you saw three different versions of Rocky Horror, or two different versions, I should say. So what ones did you see, and what are some of the differences? Well, the, the one that I got out of the library was, I believe it was the 15th anniversary or 20th anniversary edition. I can't remember which. I think it was 15th uh, on DVD. And it had the option to watch it, the American release, the UK release, and then there was also an option where, uh, I guess originally, like Richard O'Brien had wanted it to be sort of like the Wizard of Oz. And the idea was that it would be in black and white until they show up to the ball or to the convention at the uh, mansion. So uh, I watched it all three ways just to sort of see what it would look like, you know, because the other one was just they, um, you know, turned it into black and white instead of color. So. I can't say that I noticed a lot of really big differences between the U.S. and U.K. version. I think the U.K. version is a little bit longer, and I think it has one more song towards the end. But that really was the difference. Like the rest of the film, it wasn't like there were extra shots or things went on longer. It just seems that there was this one song, this one scene towards the end that extended it a little bit that wasn't in the U.S. version. Yeah, I don't know what the story is, why they cut that one song and then when the film was re-released because this was you know still the era of film and rocky horror lived as a film entity for a long damn time when it was re-released for its 15th anniversary to theaters they reinstated superheroes so i was kind of shocked um i'd mentioned that i used to see this at um, fairlane and it was apparently the 15th anniversary and then when i would go see it i only went once when i was in college i went to see it at briarwood and it was not that version it was this earlier version that cut out superheroes and I was totally bummed. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> Why did this happen? And it is such a horrible cut, too. 
Yeah, I think that like it's funny to hear you say that between the two versions because you get acclimated to a certain version and and this sort of reminds me of the debate that we had on the Blade Runner episode. Like which version of Blade Runner did you grow up with? And it I think it's probably the same thing with this where you get used to it, there's a certain aspect of it that you really like. You you know where the beats are, you know where things are going to happen and then for some reason there's something added and you're like where did that come from? When it was taken away from me, I mean, you can still hear part of the end of the song going on. So it's not even like this smooth re- removal of stuff. I mean, it's like if you watch the theatrical version of Aliens and then you watch the longer version of Aliens, you're really not going to know the difference. I mean, because the editing is so smooth. There are even just like little lines that are taken out, but you can, you know, if you really look for it, you can kind of know where those lines were and you might get used to one version or another, but you know, it's, it, it's very well done. Very, you know, just the editing of that is great. It's like, you can tell people like, oh, did you know in this version of Aliens, like there's these guns that are going off in this hallway and it's kind of tense because they have this kind of, it doesn't add anything to the movie. But that removal and re-edition when it came to the director's version, so smooth. The removal of superheroes, it's like, you know, suddenly there's this huge cut and you hear a little bit of a song and then it goes to the narrator and it's like, what the hell just happened? (laughs) It's like the worst edit in the world for me. Well, it sounds more like they edited the actual locked print as opposed to going in. Yeah. Because you would get that ramp you know, you're talking right. about that sound ramp. And that just has to do with the fact that the optical runs ahead of the picture. So it, it, that's what it sounds like they did. Like somebody just wet spliced a section out of the out of the film and then ran it. And, and it, like you said, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to cut it. Um, it's not like the film's overly long as it is. And you're like, oh, we got to save more time so we can get more shows or something. Got to get this thing under 90 minutes. I mean, it's like two minutes. If that, right. it's, I mean, it's not a huge cut. So it, it's not even like it's a verse, chorus, verse. It's no. like two or three verses. No, it just doesn't make any sense. So it's, like I said, I don't know why it's missing. All I know is I watched the two different versions and then I watched this black and white thing. And I thought the black and white thing was an interesting idea. The, the problem is, is that I think with the narrator, it doesn't work. Because if you're going to do the black and white thing and then the narrator shows up, and then they're, you know, he's explaining all this stuff, and they're in, you know, black and white too. And then all of a sudden they get into, you know, the convention and the time warp, and all of that is where the color starts. And then you go back to the narrator, and now he's in color. It's just like that doesn't make any sense. It's like either should have left the narrator in black and white, or you should have done the whole thing in color, or do the whole thing in black and white. I don't, <laughs> it's like, it just did, like, like I said, once again, to me, the narrator is disembodied from the story. And for you to, to go, oh, well, we wanted to do the first reel in black and white to do this sort of homage to The Wizard of Oz in a particular way, um, I don't necessarily think works. I think it's an idea that's, that's interesting. I like the idea that, once again, that opens up this this feeling of um, the, the the squares like basically having this experience you know, psychedelic experience, you know, just by being there. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The way I picture it is that Richard O'Brien at one point was thinking, oh, it'd be kind of cool if this happened, and like maybe wrote a note or something, and then it didn't happen, maybe brought it up, maybe didn't, and then like years later, it becomes this thing where he thinks that that's what it was, or he just thinks that it would have been cooler if that had happened. I don't know. I mean, I don't mean to disparage Richard O'Brien, but it just feels like, yeah, no, that probably really wasn't the way that you guys were going to do it. I think you would have lit everything differently. You know, the real changes would have had to have happened at the right time because they're not about to actually, you know, cut color film into the middle. I mean, we saw a little bit of color film being added right towards the end of, you know, World's Greatest Sinner. That's like two seconds worth of color film. And, you know, that was probably a quote unquote technical marvel at the time. So it's just like, I I just don't see that really happening. So I don't mean to call Richard O'Brien a liar, but I kind of am calling shenanigans on that whole idea. I mean, if, if I was going to do it and someone, like I said, if, if someone wanted to do a black and white kind of thing. The narrator would just be in black and white the whole time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And I think with the narrator being in black and white the whole time as opposed, and then also this sort of, you know, Wizard of Oz kind of reveal, um, I think that would lend something. You know, right. because like to me, black and white represents and, and, and this is odd, but it, it represents like newsreel, it represents authority, it represents like and, and it would, especially when you're talking about a narrator who's trying to tell you a story. It, it could also like um, symbolically represent like newspaper, you know, to your mind, you know, the idea of, you know, text, print. Um, so so it's the idea of, of that kind of schematic. But in 1975, they weren't going to like you said, they weren't going to do that. It was going to be, you know done much more easily. I mean, today you could do it with no problem in digital. Oh, yeah. 
Well, I mean, even I was just talking to a friend about this recently, looking at the way that they did the girl in the red coat in Schindler's List. I mean, that movie was shot using black and white stock, but then when it came to those scenes of the girl in the red coat, it was color stock that they then desaturated everything other than the red. And when I went to see that at the theater, you could see a shift in the stock when it came to that particular area. It was just like, whoa, what's going on? Like, everything looked a little bit different. I mean, because black and white stock, like pure black and white stock, I'm not talking like Tri-X or Bi-X or something, but, you know, it has a different grain to it. It has a different weight to it. You can just, the way that the, the light goes through the film itself is so much different than a desaturated color. And so I could actually tell the difference before the girl in the red coat started showing up. I liked what they did. I thought it was very effective, and there was probably no other way that they could have done it at the time as far as you know, using that, that change of stock and everything. But I, you know, it was um, – again, this is Steven Spielberg, 90s, he's got the money, he's going to do it kind of thing, and it was what was best for the film. I don't necessarily see like, oh, yeah, and then we're going to cut right here in the middle. I mean, it's not going to be a real change for when the door opens and the you know we get to see the Transylvanians. Well, the only film that I can think of that cuts back and forth between black and white and color that would still would have had to been done on film. And I remember seeing it in the theater. I, th- I don't know if I was working at the theater at the time, though. was uh, American History X. Right. And the, the problem with seeing American History X in the theater, because it was switching back between black and white and color, was those sections, I believe, were shot in black and white, and then they were spliced in, and then it was printed on the color stock, obviously. And the problem was is that the timing of the black and white sections ended up being bluish. And oh. it it didn't have this really true, re, you know, deep, rich blacks that you'd want. And I, I think they... With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Could color time it for video without a problem, but it just seems like it just wasn't going to be possible within context of trying to do it in a theatrical presentation in that way, especially in that era in the late 90s. Yeah, there's one movie I should probably send you one of these days. It's called Captain Milkshake, where it was this Vietnam story, and they shot uh, – it was shot the opposite of the way that you would think because they shoot – all of the stuff when our main character is at home in the U.S. in black and white, but they shoot all the Vietnam stuff in color, and it was actually supposed to originally be 3D color, and that's just because 
back home is so safe and everything. And then when you get to Vietnam, it was like this explosion and the guy just couldn't handle it. It was almost like sensory overload. And that to me really handled the way that they went between the black and white and the color super well. And, you know, for what it was uh, in, I want to say that this was late 60s. This is one of the first Vietnam films that was, you know, coming out. I mean, this is right after Easy Rider. It might have been right at the same time. I mean, that was, to me, a a real technical marvel that they were able to put that together. See, we're just getting so far afield in terms of talking about one small aspect of this film. But I think that really the movie kind of lends itself to that because not only do you have these different versions and and people have seen it, you know, hundreds of times, you know, if they're real big fans of this and we're going almost every weekend, like going to see their favorite band or something. But a lot of this then worked itself into the pop culture and there's many places uh, I would say that we've seen, um, you know, references to or just direct lifts. I had never seen Fame before uh, recently, and I only watched it just for the Rocky Horror parts. And um, have you seen Fame? You Fame the movie or the TV show? Fame the movie, and I'm talking about the original movie, not the remake. It's been forever. I can't even tell you anything about it. I was. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Shocked when the movie starts and it's the guy who played Emil in RoboCop is one of the main characters in fame. And he's like telling this really heartfelt story. And he ends up being this really sensitive, like young gay guy who's just kind of coming to grips with his sexuality and stuff. And I'm just like, holy shit, that's Emil from RoboCop who like turned into like the cancer eating man on the X-Files. And he was this total asshole on ER and stuff. And I was just like, oh my God. And he had tons of hair he's got like this red hair going everywhere and it was just like so other than that um i wasn't that impressed (laughs) with fame but i was happy to see um them talking about rocky horror and they kind of worked that into uh the texture of the film and they kind of did somewhat the same thing with um a more recent film the perks of being wallflower which uh 
it was kind of interesting to me. That was written by uh, Steve Shabosky, I believe. And Shabosky is a, a I want to say, if he's not a fellow U of M graduate, he definitely was in Ann Arbor around the same time that I was. So he's probably referencing some of these Ann Arbor screenings of Rocky Horror, which I mentioned before, I only went to one screening because I didn't really like what they were doing at that particular showing. They were just really loud and not on point with their um, call and response or anything. So I was just like, this is really fucking sloppy. I would think that Rocky Horror in a college town would have been glorious, but unfortunately I thought it was just a big fat mess. If you're going to do it, do it right. And then we've seen Rocky Horror show up, uh, of course, in Glee. I know you were a big Gleek, Rob. Yeah. And I was also a Dalek at the same time. It's amazing. A Dalek. <laughs> Which I don't know what either means, so there you go. I just upset two camps of people. Exterminate and sing. Please send hate mail, too. And then uh, it was even in a cold case uh, episode where the murder was set against a uh, screening, you know, a bunch of kids that were going to see Rocky Horror all the time. So I think that was actually better than Glee. Um, I didn't watch the Glee episode. I had already tuned out of Glee. I think I tuned out of Glee like after about the second episode. And then I tried to watch another one like a few years later. And I was like, oh my God, this is the exact same show as it was before. It's just these kids look older, but it's the same stupid intrigue of who's going to try to get this person in trouble. And I just, I couldn't watch that show. I don't believe I've ever watched a single episode. Did you watch the uh, Rocky Horror parody film? I have to say that no, I did not, because I ran out of time. I was trying to watch another thing that's connected to this that we'll talk about uh, in a little bit, but I didn't get a chance to watch that. I didn't either. But it seems to me that this movie would really lend itself to a porn parody fairly easily, since, I mean, there's at least... One, two, three, four sex scenes that I can think of without really trying too hard, and a possible lesbian liaison as well. So, yeah, I can see this really going to be a uh, porn parody. Yeah, the only thing that I would say in terms of being a porn parody is that they would probably change the character of Frankenfurter to a woman, I'd be willing to bet, because... Uh, with him being a man and the amount of sex that he's having with all various people, uh, as we know, most porn is usually viewed, and I, uh, people might you know take offense at this. Uh, most porn is straight is viewed by straight guys, so I don't think that they'd be big into watching you know buy sex. No, probably not. I did like though that it was the Rocky with an eye horror picture show, and then they tacked on the a porn parody, so that at least it wasn't this ain't Rocky horror. <laughs> this ain't the projection booth. I fucking hate those. This ain't <laughs> not the Wizard of Oz. XXX. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know what's worse, like doing that or like making a really bad like pun on the name. You know, like uh, Edward Penis Hands. You know what? I actually they did keep Rocky as a man, but um, I haven't gone through and, and watched it to see who he's boffing. My name's Brad, and this is my wife, Jen. If you've come this far, then you're clearly in the market for a strange and wonderful story. Lights. Camera. 
Action! It's just a hump to the left. With your hands on her hips. I'm a horrible with a W. I want to say that they changed Rocky. Rocky is more fluid when it comes to the um, the stage play. I want to say that uh, Pat Benatar, no, Joan Jett might have played um, Frankenfurter on stage. Another place that it kind of pops up, and I didn't realize it until I watched it, uh, until I watched Rocky Horror, is, um, and I... And, and I don't know why I didn't think of it earlier. And I actually sent him a couple of messages to see if it was the case. And he goes, yeah, he goes, I think it was pretty much was the case. Is uh, Tara Firmer, which we did on the show. And Will Keenan, who plays uh, the character of Casey in there, who I don't want to ruin the ending for you, but there's some transgenderism within that film. But at the very end, he's sort of dressed in these fishnets and his voice, the way that he's – you know, delivering these lines sort of sounds like Tim Curry at times. Oh, yeah. Now that you say it, I can kind of see that. Yeah, yeah. I definitely didn't pick that up the first time, yeah, though. Yeah, he has kind of this, you know, lilting voice. Like, so, Jerry, why did you do this to me? And, you know, I could have loved you and all of this. And I was like, as I thought back on it as I was watching it, you know, as Tim Curry. And I was like, oh, okay. I think I know what Lloyd was kind of doing there. <laughs> I it took me a long time before I figured out what kind of accent Tim Curry is doing in the film. <laughs> he's got that whole like, you know, like how he's rhyming. Let me show you a rhyme, and maybe play you a sign. Oh, it's it just like this weird, like the way that he's kind of morphing his vowels in certain parts, and it's like. What, what is he doing? And I didn't necessarily even figure out what words he was saying for the longest time. I also had trouble with Columbia quite a few times when she was singing. There's one line where she says, I fell in love with a, a certain dope. And I always thought that she said she fell in love with a sitting dog. <laughs> uh, a sitting dog. Maybe it's uh, years and years ago, fell in love with that little dog listening to the Victrola. His master's voice. Yeah, just sitting there listening listening to the radio, the sitting dog. Rob, let's go ahead and let's take a break and play an interview with Scott Michaels. He's one of the co-authors of a very voluminous book. It um, It's not an arm breaker by any, um, any stretch of the imagination, especially in paperback, but you've got a lot of great interviews in here, especially talking to a lot of the folks that were involved in the early days of Rocky Horror. Some unheard voices, uh, usually, like talking to Richard O'Brien's wife and at the time and and a lot of other folks that were right there at the beginning so let's talk to scott michaels about rocky horror from concept to cult my name is scott michaels and i own a company called dearly departed tours in hollywood a sightseeing tour what was your first rocky horror experience like the first time i saw rocky was um 
You know, I, it was on television, and they did one of those special features on a on a show called PM Magazine back in the uh, in the early '80s, and uh, it was all about these weirdos. You know, can you imagine what they're doing? And they showed them doing the what I come to find out was the time warp in the aisles, and they were throwing things. And I thought, well, that was kind of good. So uh, there was a theater near me in Detroit where I grew up, and that was showing it. And I begged my brother to take me, and uh, I and I and he took me, and it was a midnight showing. I knew nothing about it, but I brought rice and I brought toast, and uh, and I just followed along with it. And it was the first time I saw uh, a group that I felt I could uh, fit into. I guess you could say. Uh, I, I just thought there was a camaraderie there that I really enjoyed, and I had not experienced that before. So it was a real magic thing for me. The projection booth is based in Detroit. So where did you go see the the film? Uh, I started the Punch and Judy uh, in Gross Point, and uh, actually got a job there uh, shortly afterwards. Since it was an R-rated movie, we had a hard time, you know, getting in sometimes. And uh, but as an employee of the theater, I, I spent six hours with four other people cleaning up after Rocky Horror. But it was that thing that guaranteed me being able to get in. Uh, so I did. So it was it was great. The Punch and Judy was a terrific place. How did Rocky Horror from concept to cult come about? I was living in England, and I went over because I was in a relationship with somebody, and the somebody happened to be a talk show host, and there was a shortage of guests one day, and this is, I mean, this is just how it happened, and he said to me, do you, is there anyone you want to meet? <laughs> well, okay, I want to meet Patricia Quinn, because she was my, you know, one of my favorites in, in Rocky Horror. And uh, that afternoon, they called up uh, Pat Quinn and got her on the show for the taping that day. And I went down and, and met her, and I was completely starstruck. I, I, you know, afterwards, I was doing the whole, you know, incest is best thing with Pat, and, and we ended up hitting it off. And uh, she, I mentioned that I was writing because I, I, I have a website called findadeath.com that I, I write the ends of people's biographies. And uh, I didn't really call that real proper writing, but uh, it is what it is. And uh, she was, she said, well, I have this idea for this book. And I think that uh, my story would be an interesting story. And I, and I was enamored. And uh, so I took it on board and uh, I met with Pat several times and interviewed her several for several, several hours and uh, and tried to sell the magenta story, but uh, nobody was really interested in hearing solely the magenta story. So, uh, you know, through Pat, I met Timmy O'Brien, and then I met a couple of other people. Uh, I met a little Sadie Corey. I found her through an agency called Ugly, uh, who cast all the unusual people, like Hugh Cecil with the monocle, and Stephen Calcutt, who was the really, really tall guy, and and Fran Fullenweider, who was the very large woman, and all these unusually shaped people uh, were represented by an agency called Ugly. And I contacted them, and they gave me more information on these people. And it just sort of, it like dominoes, they all started coming, you know, phone numbers started becoming available. And, uh, and, uh, and I found that everybody had lots of little stories to tell. And, uh, and that's sort of what I started doing, was gathering these, these, uh, uh, these interviews. About what year was this that you first met up with Patricia Quinn? Oh gosh, uh, maybe ninety eight, ninety nine, probably, probably ninety eight. I think it was. And how did David Evans come to the project? Well, I was working at a uh, television program, in, and uh, it was 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Unrelated to my acts, actually. And, uh, and we, it was called Rock, rock Babylon. And we were, we were hunting down unusual, terrible stories having to do with rock and roll history. Over the top, you know, m- bowls of cocaine and, and dwarves' heads and things like that at parties. Just the, the legendary stories. And, uh, and we started researching Freddie Mercury. And David Evans, uh, I, I got in contact with David to uh, confirm a couple of stories because he was friends with Freddie Mercury. And, uh, and we ended up having, uh, dinner with David and his partner. And, um, I got on the subject of Rocky Horror and I had not, I've never been published before. Uh, and, uh, David sort of, uh, you know, volunteered to help me a lot with the book. So, uh, so that's how we hooked up. How did you kind of decide who was going to interview who or who was going to write what? Well, 90% of the interviews, uh, I, I got myself through my own, you know, steps, my own research. And David, uh, David, you know, helped along with his contacts. David knew a guy named Peter Straker who was friends with Richard O'Brien. You know, so David, uh, we arranged that interview. Uh, a few other people, David and, uh, David and I went along together to interview. But I'd say uh, a majority of the interviews I got myself. And, and, um, and David, David is a, a very clever writer. And uh, and David, you know, sort of wove the the story around these this collection of interviews. It's a very interesting way to tell the story, and I like the way that it kind of goes through and highlights so many different people. And you get those voices. Sometimes the stories kind of coincide; other times they directly contradict one another. <laughs> yeah, it's it's everyone's version of the same story, and uh, and I do find that uh, to be quite uh, prevalent in the book. It's just. You know, the, the Raina Burton story with the glitter is told probably 10 times by 10 different people. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's legendary. You know, the guy, um, Ken, was it Ken Shepard, the stuntman who was hurt on the set of the, uh, the laboratory scene, who was, who was a meatloaf stuntman. I think there are, uh, about five different recounts of, of his story and his accident on the set. So, uh, so yeah, there's, it's, it's, an interesting collection of memories and so many different memories of the same incident makes it really entertaining. Yeah, I've never seen the Rocky Horror stage show. So what was Rainer's role like? I, I never saw Rainer. I mean, he, he I mean, I'm, I know Rainer, but I never saw him performing. And he was the original Rocky at the Royal Court when it was a little 60 seat theater the first time Richard put the show together. You know, the story was really, you know, the, obviously we all know the story and it's all become very polished. Uh, Lou Adler, uh, courtesy of Lou Adler. And, uh, and it's, you know, Rainer was, I think Rocky, the the character of Rocky, I think had a much more uh, uh, spoken role in the, 
in the play than he did in, in the film and um, more of a personality rather than, you know, I, I don't want to speak ill of Peter Hinwood, but he was a pretty prop. Uh, that, that's, that's pretty much what Rocky was there uh, in the film, I think. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had while trying to get this book together? Uh, contacting Tim Curry, for one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, because now David knew Tim. David Evans knew Tim from back in the day when, when, when he, knew, he hung out with Peter. Uh, I'm sorry, with, uh, well, with Peter Straker, who was interviewed in the book, and Freddie Mercury and Tim Curry. They were all part of this sort of crowd. And, uh, and, uh, so, you know, we, I wanted to get in touch with Tim and Tim was not ignoring, or was not, was just ignoring. I know that he was getting the messages and he was just ignoring them. And we put together a lucky land casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky, lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha. In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rough copy of the book. Unedited copy of the book. I mean, it was all the interviews, raw interviews. And I sent them on to Tim. And Tim responded to that big time with, with lawsuit threats and things like that. So uh, it was clear that Tim wasn't interested in, in, uh, in sharing his uh, version of the stories and, and was quite concerned about uh, other people's versions of the stories uh, as well. So, you know, we were unable to talk to him. And that was probably the, the biggest stumbling block, I thought, uh, in the book. The biggest missing piece of, uh, of information was Tim's version of things. Did you have to go back and kind of re-edit based on his threats, or did everything kind of stand? Well, I mean, in, in England, um, it, it, it sound, slander sounds so dramatic, uh, but I will say that in England, the slander laws are much more... A lot of things that get published here in America would not get published in England. Uh, for instance, back in 97, I think Kitty Kelly uh, wrote a book about the royal family that was quite dishy and quite scandalous. It was never published in London or in, in England because of the slander laws there, because there were a lot of in, there was a lot of information that couldn't be backed up. There was a lot of information that might be considered damaging to some people and their reputations or their possibly their career. And that was the case with this book. Certain things we couldn't include in the book because we couldn't prove it, because it was hearsay, because somebody said something else about somebody. And, uh, and, and it's, it's a lot of things we could not include for that reason. It, was, it might affect somebody negatively, uh, and, uh, or it was some, somebody claiming that somebody said something else. And unless it comes from them directly, you, uh, you can't, really, can't really do that. And also, just out of politeness, there were some things that just were really unnecessary to keep in there. And, and just because... You know, they were kind of mean-spirited statements. And, and I don't mean to, to drop like a tidbit in there about, you know, like, like kind of stringing you along. I mean, it's quite clear that there was some animosity with some of the people. And uh, that's not left for speculation in the book. That's, that's, uh, that's um, you know, addressed. But I, I, we thought that there were some things that were really unnecessary with some of the exchanges and things like that. So that we left a lot of that stuff out. I have to say that the most interesting interview, and I put interesting kind of in quotes, was uh, Kimmy Wong O'Brien. I, I don't know if I could have lasted through that interview. Kimmy was really sweet. Kimmy is 
I, you know, I don't want to sound condescending at all, but Kimmy is, is gone through the ringer and, uh, and is a, is a delicate individual. And, uh, and also when I was doing this book, I wasn't, I'm not a professional interviewer. Now I can do it. Now I could, you know, I know how to reel people in. And, uh, you know, when they start getting off on a tangent, I would be able to step in. I didn't know how back then. So what you see is what you get. And there was a lot of thoughts training, you know, trailing off into nowhere and things like that. I, 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 there are some things I would change if I had the opportunity, if that book were to get published again, there are some things I would, I would definitely change, but Kimmy was sweet and generous and, uh, and a very colorful individual. Colorful. That's a good word. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> have you had a, have you been to, cause she did a couple of those uh, conventions in New York and, and she, she adores meeting the fans. And I do honestly think that Kimmy's Kimmy's uh, contribution to Rocky is often overlooked. I do. I do think that she is, uh, I think her voice is there in the original production. And I'm not saying that she, she should get writing credit or, or any kind of financial compensation, but I do think that she was around for the beginning, and I do think that uh, she is uh, largely uh, over uh, passed over when acknowledgments are coming in. That's that's my thought, my personal thought. Yeah, you were talking about the animosity surrounding the project and everything, and that definitely it comes through clear as day as far as who gets credit for what, who is able to kind of say it was this group effort who says, you know, this and this person really added things and don't look at me when it comes to credit. And it just seemed like everybody wanted to either take a stake or, you know, give credit to other people. And it was very interesting the way that this kind of baton is passed around from person to person. Yeah. It, uh, Richard O'Brien said something and there's probably, I think it's in the book. I'm sure it's in the book. And, uh, and, uh, and it was something that I, that I, I use quite often. Uh, it was that uh, you said success has many fathers, but failure is always an orphan. And, uh, and I thought that that was really, really relevant in this case because it was, you know, I've once Rocky's become financially successful. So everyone wants a piece of it. If it was a flop, like a lot of Richard's other shows, nobody wants anything to do with it. So, uh, it's, you know, I, I think Richard is very protective of it. I, I don't know. I mean, only those three people, Jim and Richard and Brian, really know what happened or what transpired there. Nice people like like Sue Blaine, you know, she just stayed out of it. You know, she's friends with them all and, and wants to uh, remain friends with them all and can't take sides. Jim Sharman, oddly, is silent during all of this. I don't know if you've read his book, but uh, Blood and Tinsel, his, biog- his autobiography mentions Rocky in about two pages, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. And Richard embraces it. Richard loves it and embraces it. And, uh, and, uh, it's his baby. I, I, I don't doubt other people contributed to it, but, uh, but the fact that Richard can take that, that show, uh, and make it his own, which he has done and may manage to, to, uh, extricate, uh, Brian's involvement from it. Brian was there, uh, you know, but legally, Legally, Richard can do that. So that tells you about some sort of ownership, you know. Now when you see it, it's Richard O'Brien's Rocky Horror Show. It's no longer just the Rocky Horror Show. So uh, so legally, you know, he he can do that. There have not been any lawsuits about copyright infringement or anything like that from any, from Brian or Jim. So there you are. How long did it take for this project to kind of come together in its final form? 
cool. Years it did. Uh, from meeting Pat to to the book being published, I think it. I think the Bush book came out in 2002 or May of 2002. So probably four or five years. And uh, and it wasn't anything. It was just you know it was something that I was doing in my spare time and David was doing in his spare time. So uh, and and then miraculously we actually got a publisher through David's agent. So we were fortunate in that respect. We were fortunate in a lot of respects. I uh, like I said I do I do things differently nowadays. I think everyone would about everything they've ever done in their past. But but I'm really proud of it. And and yeah, about four or five years it took. What was the reaction when it came out? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't spoken to any of them since. <laughs> I uh, I don't know to be honest with you. I I know that certain some people were not happy. Uh, I I can honestly say that I went back to all those people and I went back to all their interviews and I quoted them all to the people and they were all fine with it uh, when when the book came out. So I know that Pat uh, was a little upset because she thought the book should have been all uh, about her and and I get that. Uh, and I know that a couple of the Transylvanians were a little bit miffed about some of the stuff that's put in there, but I didn't make anything up. You know, these were, these are quotes and they were clear through legal and, and, um, and, uh, and that's the way it went. But I do, I, you know, Pat, Pat was the one I, I felt the worst about because I think that she thought it was going to be a bigger project about her. And that's the only thing that, uh, that, um, otherwise, the book is out there, and I think everyone was pretty happy with it. I know Sadie uh, was angry about it because there were a couple of things that uh, that I wasn't. Um, there was there are certain things I didn't get nuances about, you know, British vocabulary and British uh, expressions, and I, I screwed up a couple of things here and there on Sadie's interview. So, so I'm sure there's a couple of those things in there too. But, uh, but you know, all, all in all, I'm happy with it. So, when did you come back to the U.S.? I left Britain in uh, about a month after the Rocky book came out. I, uh, I, my, my relationship ended and I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave Britain under, uh, any other reason that, except that I wanted to go. So I gave it another year and I, and when the book came out, I thought, no, I can, I can leave now and go back to America with, you know, without, uh, feeling like my time here was, was wasted, even though that sounds dramatic. Um, <laughs> it was felt, I felt like with this book out, I'm leaving on my own terms. That's, that's, that's what I felt like. Tell me about Dearly Departed Tours. Uh, well, Dearly Departed, I started uh, about two years after I came back from England. And uh, before I went to England, I was working there for another company called Graveline Tours. We, we did a sightseeing tour of Hollywood, the dark side of Hollywood. Uh, and, um, you know, murders and scandals and things like that. When I was in England, uh, that company went under, uh, actually it was sold to somebody else who bought it and killed himself. So when I got back, I thought that was a rather poetic end to the whole thing. When I got back, I started my own company and this January 1st will be our 10th anniversary. So I'm really quite proud of that. So what are some of the things that you show people on this tour? Well, it's the murders and scandals. So you'll see things like, uh, you know, stalker murders, Dominic, Dominique Dunn and, and Rebecca Schaefer, as well as Dracula and, and other actors, uh, Bella Lugosi and other actors like uh, uh, Marie Prevost, whose names aren't really, you know, thrown around very much anymore these days. That's why we call it the Tragical History Tour, because uh, some of the names people might be learning about for the first time. Albert Decker is another one who was uh, an interesting actor who died spectacularly of autoerotic asphyxiation. And we also have, you know, Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson and, and things like that, too. So it covers a, a little over 100 years of uh, of Hollywood history in in about three hours, and we also do a tour that's devoted to the uh, 
the Manson murders. It's called the Helter Skelter tour. So it's um, it's all sorts of stuff. I imagine you are one of the tour guides. Yeah, I have uh, I have two other guys that work for me that do tours. But I, I it started with only me for the first few years, and now I've got other people helping me. So, what uh, other writing projects have you worked on, or are you working on currently? I, you know, now my thing is documentaries. I did one, yeah, it was called, the first one we did was called Dearly Departed Volume 1, and we were able to cover about 18 different uh, specific celebrities uh, and focus on them specifically. So, like, there was an actor in the 70s, most people don't remember, his name was Jack Cassidy. Most people remember him because he was David, David Cassidy's father and Sean Cassidy's father. But he died in a fire in 1976, and it was pretty big news back in the day. And uh, the person that owns the apartment where uh, where he died got in touch with me and said, do you ever want to see it? And I said, well, yeah, can I bring a camera crew? So we went and we filmed inside the place. That place has since been sold. Uh, the Ambassador Hotel where Bobby Kennedy was killed, that's gone now, too. Gene Harlow's last home uh, has been sold, too. So we have this access to these places that are no longer available to have access to. So, uh, so historically, they're quite. I think they're quite valuable. The second one we did was called the Six Degrees of Helter Skelter, and it's a geographic retelling of the Manson murders, and uh, and uh, not like a, how could this have happened, but this is where it all happened. This is what it looked like then, and what it looks like now. And our next one is due out in the next uh, in the next month, and we got into the Wonderland House where the Wonderland murders happened, and. And uh, cover about another, you know, James Dean and a couple of other celebrities too. So the full-length documentaries, some of them are on Netflix. Actually, one of them is on Netflix, and they're all available on Amazon. So, so um, you know, I'm happy with that. Happy. They're they're fun, and I I wouldn't make it. I wouldn't write it. I wouldn't sell it if I didn't believe in it. And and I truly mean that. The Rocky book, I love that book, and uh, and I'm I'm really I'm really happy with the way it turned out. And the same with these documentaries. And it's also, it's amazing to, sorry, uh, it is an amazing thing to, to actually have become friends with these people that I spent so many evenings with. You know, I would go on Fridays and Saturday nights, mostly the Saturday nights, and I spent all this time with these people. And then to actually sit across the table and to know them now. You know, Perry Bedden, uh, who is uh, another Transylvanian, has become a good friend. Sadie Corey was one of my closest friends. And, and uh, you know, to be able to, to watch Rocky Horror with Sadie and, you know, after dinner one night, and she was doing a little time warp in, in, my, in my house. It was like, oh, my gosh, this is like the coolest thing. And, uh, and you know, to, 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 to know these people is an honor. To have met them, to say that I have firsthand knowledge, and, and I've met, Almost all of the Transylvanians, and a lot of those guys are dead now, too, that we did an interview. It is really cool. It is really cool. This little kid in Detroit who used to, uh, you know, dodge police to break the curfew to go see Rocky Horror at midnight uh, would uh, get to meet these guys. And, and actually, no, it was a real honor. It was a real honor. The movie that's coming out pretty soon, um, what is the name of that one? The, oh, it was Dearly Departed Volume 2, actually. It's a, it's, it's a new documentary. Yeah, that, that'll be Dearly Departed Volume 2. Is there a website where people can kind of keep up with you? Well, there's DearlyDepartedTours.com, uh, and on Facebook is easiest. Just look up Dearly Departed Tours, or my name's Scott Michaels, and uh, and I, I'm on there all the time. So, I'm, And also, I have a little Facebook page for Sadie. It's called We Love Sadie, Corey, and Rocky Horror. And uh, so there's, you know, anytime I find stuff about Rocky, I always post it on there. But that's my little tribute to Sadie. Uh, we were uh, we, we were very very close, and she was one of my best friends, and uh, and uh, it's my little mem- memorial to her. 
Oh, and also, yeah, no, also, Mike, I should tell you, I, I don't know, that I have, you know, in Dearly Departed Tours, we have a little museum in our office. And, uh, you know, I have things like the, the suitcase that Jane Mansfield packed the night she was killed and the bed that Rock Hudson died in. But I also have in the back of my shop my little Rocky Horror uh, Museum. And I have Sadie's suit that she did the time warp in. I have the original models that Brian Thompson made that, uh, that are, the photographs are in the book of, uh, of, uh, the bedroom, Frank's bedroom and of the church. He made those by hand and, and 20th Century Fox built the main sets from those. I have Sadie Corey's, uh, timesheets from, you know, they, when they filmed all the Transylvanian scenes. So it's all, you know, and, and also Peter Hinwood gave me a script, his, uh, from Rocky Horror. So these items, these real Rocky Horror items are, are on display in my shop too. So if anyone is a, like a Rocky Horror fan and you're in Hollywood, uh, you know, come by the dearly departed office and, and, uh, and come and see our stuff because it's your stuff too. It's there to, uh, it's there to, uh, you know, to be preserved and, and for people to enjoy. So I hope that people will take advantage of that and come and see the stuff. 20th Century Fox has brought you all kinds of movies, but 20th Century Fox has never before brought you anything like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> The Rocky Horror Picture Show is wonderfully weird. <laughs> it's fabulously freaky. We are ready for the floor show. The story is strange. I knew he was in with a bad crowd, but it was worse than I imagined. The songs are super. Just a sweet transvestite. The cast is completely crazy. <laughs> oh, Rocky! See the Rocky Horror Picture Show, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. So when you talk about Rocky Horror, you can't really not talk about the fans and the entire experience of going to see Rocky Horror. And I'm sorry that you haven't seen it in this context, Rob. And next time you are out in Detroit, we're going to find a shadow cast that does this and we're going to participate in this. Not participate as far as the fishnets, unless you want to go that far. But I'm definitely willing to go and watch. Why not? <laughs> you see me shiver with anticipation. 
So when you go to see Rocky Horror, to me, there's three things going on. You've got what's on screen, and I've talked about the way that we're kind of breaking the fourth wall with the film quite a few times. You've got what's right in front of the screen, which is the shadow cast. So you have people who are dressing up as the characters and basically acting out the movie, interacting with the screen. There's this whole thing as far as like when the world is turning during the superhero song, they're up there and kind of spinning the you know the screen. And there's uh, people having sex with Charles Gray's uh, chin at certain points. So there's that kind of interaction going on. And then there's the audience sitting out in the, in the theater, and it's this kind of like liturgy. I mean, there's this whole idea of call and response when it comes to the film, and talk about anticipation, anticipating those lines and being able to almost feed answers to the characters or feed answers to yourself with this kind of call. So uh, how familiar are you with that kind of stuff, Rob? Uh, very little. Um, all I know is that from what I read, I, I tried to look up like what is in the kit, although I know that they don't do that anymore uh, in most places. And then what some of the line responses are, such as I know, uh, what was it when they're getting out of the car and they're like going up to the to the house and she's got the newspaper on her head and someone's supposed to yell out, you know, buy an umbrella, you cheap bitch or something like that. Which allegedly is the first call out that they had for the film. So good call on that one. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, it's kind of funny that way in, like I said, I referenced at the top, uh, the room where people will just shout things back at the screen. I don't think that there's any sort of like, okay, at this point you've got to say this or you've got to say that with the room. But um, uh, like I said, that's really sort of the only interactive film experience I can think of in that way. Over the years, it's been written down. It's been codified. It definitely changes. You know, it does remind me a lot of the church as far as there are different branches, as far as how this stuff goes, different, um, you know, just between Fairlane and Briarwood. I mean, it's a 40-minute drive, but it was a totally different experience from one theater to another. A lot of the lines are the same. You know, it's like when you go to a Lutheran funeral versus a Catholic funeral. You're getting up and you're sitting down at pretty much the same time. There might just be a few other differences as far as what you say. And, you know, I mean, to an outsider like me, you might as well just call yourself fucking Catholic. You're pretty much there. Maybe you don't believe in like the saints or the Eucharist is a little different or something, but to an outsider, you're almost exactly the same. So sorry, Martin Luther, wherever you are, but you know, you might've had your 99 gripes, but the, it, it really hasn't worked out so well for you. <laughs> I got 95 theses, but, uh, this ain't one of them. That, exactly. That the- the Jay-Z or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, no, I mean, I can understand that. I mean, it, it just, it just seems that people come to a certain appreciation and they want a certain sort of experience. And I think that that's really what it's about. It seems is that people are willing to take these things and then sort of, you know, modify them to, you know, whatever it is they want to work with. I'm sure that it's different if you could do everything with all of the props, so mm-hmm. I'm sure that when places got rid of the props, certain things had to change in terms of the interactions. Yeah, definitely. And then there were you know local differences as well. I mean, I remember specifically in the um, Touch a Touch a Touch Me song, 
when she says, I want to go the distance, um, when people, in, at least at uh, Fairlane were saying it, is seeing this, they would say, I want to fuck the Pistons as the next line. So I um, definitely like that there were some local flavors going on in there. You know, I want to fuck the Pistons isn't necessarily going to translate to Boston, you know, but um, well, in a different yeah, in a different way, maybe in a different context. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But yeah, there's this whole idea of this call and response and having this kind of liturgy of, of what's going on. And what I find fascinating, though, and, and I'm curious to expose you to this, Rob, is a lot of, at least when I was going to see this, and this is you know late 80s and early 90s, I'm seeing this stuff. And this was, and we've talked about this a little bit before, kind of offline, as far as the... Um, the wave of political correctness hadn't necessarily crested at this point. So I'm very curious to know if that has affected Rocky Horror, because when I went to see it, there were, even though people that were involved with the film, people who were involved with the shadow cast, people who were out in the audience, I mean, there's a lot of different stripes of um, heterosexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality going on. I mean, we're all over the Kinsey scale inside of here, but there were a lot of kind of ribald, uh, body um, homosexual slurs almost. I mean, there's just a lot of like playing with gender when it comes to the call and response. I mean, there's this whole thing about like, you know, what's it like when Rocky comes in your face that you say that before Frank says, like I'm outside in the rain. And there's just like, uh, there's some other things where it's just like, you know, talking about getting fucked in the ass all over the place. And yes, there's some very phallic imagery going on in the movie. I mean, the handles inside of Rocky's, um, or sorry, Frankenfurter's, um, you know, uh, scientific lab and everything are very dildo. I mean, his, um, the candy cane workout thing that he has is a big old dildo and everything. So there's, there's that going on in the film, but it seemed to be taken almost to another level with some of the call and response. So I'm curious if things have changed since, you know, 1978 or whenever the audience participation album came out, which kind of was the way that a lot of kids would learn what you're supposed to say before you went to the show. Do you think that it might also be because some of these places where this was being done, like, for example, maybe the Castro Theater in San Francisco, you would have a large gay audience, and they were using those slurs and those words in, in a way to play with them and take the power out of them, or because they are gay, they can, you know, quote-unquote, get away with it, like, you know, the idea of, you know, use of the N-word in black folks, you know what I mean? Do you, do you think there's any of that involved? There could be. I mean, the one that always got me was... In just seven days, I'll make you a man. And there's the, what they changed it to when I was going was in just seven days and seven fucks, I'll make you a fag just like your dad. And it was just like, I mean, even back then, hearing the word fag was just like, eh. And, you know, today I'm kind of hoping that they don't sing that because it's just like, eh. But yeah, I can kind of see. I mean, right around that time also was when kind of like the word queer was being taken back by the gay community. So I was, maybe they were trying to do that as well. Or as you're saying, maybe it is just in context of the audience. It was okay. But to me, it always just made me feel a little skeevy. Yeah. I mean, I can understand that. I can understand how someone can feel uncomfortable with, you know, 
particularly use of language in that way, you know, because because the film seems you know, <laughs> it seems like the difference between um, you know going and, and having a good time with the film and then someone's bringing you know a little bit more of a raw you know interaction on it and uh, it, it sounds more serious, you know what I mean? When people use those kind of words, it's like they're injecting this sort of seriousness into it in some way or this level of meanness that doesn't seem to be in the film. It's not easy having a good time. Even smiling makes my face ache. I know exactly what you mean. I have to say, when we originally, uh, and this was we as in Mondo, Justin, and I, when we covered shock treatment way back when, God, it had to have been almost three years ago now, one from the votes. I went on a rant about Shadowcast that I eventually removed from the episode because I am of two minds when it comes to the actual Shadowcast itself. I think if I had ever been part of that, I probably would find it a lot more enjoyable. But sometimes the people that do it, and I think it's more the people that don't necessarily shadow cast Rocky Horror that are looking for other movies to kind of glom onto. And you'd mentioned the room, and I can kind of see that being a good interactive experience and everything. But then there are people that are just looking for other movies. It's like, what are we going to shadow cast next? You know, what are we going to act out? And I think it was when people started doing that for Repo, the genetic opera, that I just lost my shit. And most of the time I have no problem. You like whatever movie you're going to like. It's fine. It's great. It's grand. Go out. I don't care. Terms of endearment on golden pond, whatever floats your boat, watch whatever movie you want. Big business with Lily Tomlin and Bette Midler. Go nuts. You know, have, have fun with it. Do whatever you want. But repo just pushed me over the edge because it felt like it was this, manufactured cult film and i just had such a hard time with people actually enjoying that film and then much less dressing up like the characters and acting it out in front of the screen i was like that sounds like the most pathetic thing i've ever heard of yeah i don't know if anything can come to the level of interactivity that i've you know read and understand when it comes to this film like I said, the closest for me, because really the only one for me that I've ever had that sort of level of interactivity with, was the two times I saw The Room in the theater. And just the throwing of the spoons and, you know, people yelling out stuff that, you know, there was no script. You know, there was nobody trying to, you know, act it out or, you know, answer back to the screen. I mean, I just remember me, um, uh, when I saw it, just yelling at the screen, who are you? Because there are characters that appear in the room, you know, who um, are never really introduced and they're having these meaningful conversations. It's like, who are you? Who are you? I just remember getting drunk and yelling, who are you over and over again? And then the other one was um, just uh, with the room and the whole thing about her bringing up the cancer and that's never brought up again. (laughs) And it's like, so what are you going to talk about that cancer again? What's going on with the cancer? You know, that was about like the two things that the audience just seemed to kind of glom onto was, was trying, you know, to, 
to pull answers out of the film by screaming at it. Yeah, the Riff Tracks version of The Room is fucking classic. If you ever get the chance, you absolutely have to see that. I have problems with the Riff Tracks thing, especially when they start trying to riff a really good movie. It's like, there are so many bad movies in the world that you could riff. It's like, why would you, you know, it's like, oh, this week we're going to riff Citizen Kane. Really? Starship Troopers. (laughs) Yeah, Starship Troopers, Star Trek 2, you know, Star Trek 1, Star Trek 5. You got plenty of bad movies. Star Trek 9, Star Trek 10, Star Trek 11. You know, you can, you've got your choice there that if you want to rip the riff on stuff, go nuts, you know, but don't pick the best one and decide to riff on that. I mean, you know, Paul Verhoeven, maybe you start looking at Showgirls instead. Maybe you look at Basic Instinct as a good movie to, to riff on. But why would you do it for Starship Troopers? So anyway, sorry, let me get off my soapbox about that. But their version of The Room is very good. And they also do some very interesting things. They have that uh, robo-voiced type of thing. Huh, robo-voiced. That sounds kind of familiar. But robo-voice where... Every t- it's like Robo Voice coming in and introducing like his friends and stuff, and it always seems to happen right around the time of Tommy Wiseau having sex, and it just destroys his friend. You know, like looking at Tommy Wiseau's big white ass. So it, it works really well in the context and everything. But um, I I wonder if th- there are people who are kind of working on the script for uh, the room. It would be interesting, but yeah, I would hope to God nobody ever shadow casts that because I would not want a naked Tommy Wiseau walking around or a Tommy Wiseau clone walking around at the front of the, of the theater. Only if it was like a bodysuit, you know, like a foam oh, rubber yeah. bodysuit that someone puts on. Oh, that, that, okay. That's good. And, and, I like that. And then we could change it to the Tommy horror picture show. The way that that cult has kind of come about is much more organic and everything, and it doesn't feel manufactured. And speaking of manufactured, what did you think of shock treatment when you saw it? Well, I watched it just before this recording. So I got home from work, I put it on, and basically it had to run in real time in order for me to finish it before I came on here. So I didn't have time to take a lot of notes. But uh, I remember listening to the episode when you guys did it you know, three odd years ago. And since I had no reference to so Rocky, you're the one download we had, yeah, it was the one download. Well, you get two right each week. One's your, you know, one's your mom. And then the other one was me. So, um, it's, I like aspects of it. I find it interesting. It definitely has echoes, but it's its own thing. It's much more, uh, contemporary to the time in which it was created in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, it is, you know, two different people playing Brad and Janet. Uh, if anything, I would say that it's a continuance of this story because, as I said in, in the open, uh, the idea that, okay, it's over, the, the house takes off, it goes back up into space, and they're kind of left there to figure it out. And I get the idea that, okay, they, they tried to go back to their normal lives, but it just they had been, you know, profoundly changed, and uh, it just wasn't going to work. The, um, the the one in there that I like, I, I would say, much like how most people would latch on to Time Warp in Rocky Horror uh, over all the other songs. Not the other songs are bad, but that's the one that seems to get the most amount of attention. I would say that um, I think it's "Bitchin' in the Kitchen" is is the uh, the hit single on that album. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's number one with a bullet. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the big thing. Uh, for some reason, as I was watching it, and this references back to another episode that we did, the guy who's the show host, who's like blind and he's wearing this bad tuxedo, um, almost reminded me of the character in the ghastly horror of Johnny X. Oh, yeah, I can see that. And like he looks kind of like him in that bad tuxedo and he's on TV and he's a show host and all that stuff. So I, I was wondering if that was a, a reference from those guys back to shock treatment for some reason. In here, you know, it's what's interesting is that Richard O'Brien actually looks kind of normal outside of the glasses. And I remember seeing... Uh, publicity stills and stuff like that for Rocky Horror and Riff Raff kind of creeped me out, especially when I was a kid, when I remember seeing some stuff for Rocky Horror and um, just his look in Rocky Horror is much more sinister and you know, henchman-like but in here it's much more antiseptic Without the glasses it looks like he could leave the set and have a normal life <laughs> whereas yeah. with the other with Rocky Horror it seems like okay Richard you got to go to makeup before you're going to head out into the world yeah cuz you're going to make babies cry and people are going to run did you catch who the blind host was not offhand I'm, i apologize that is Barry Humphreys aka Dame Edna oh okay that's interesting yeah yeah so who i believe now is Doing the voice of the Goblin King in um, the Lord of the Rings, the the Hobbit. That'll do it. That guy gets around. He's still around. Still around. Still around. These Aussies and New Zealanders, they stick together. But the, uh, the it, it's my understanding that shock treatment was produced during like some sort of Hollywood strike, and it was supposed to be a little bit more elaborate, and then they basically had to scale it all to like one set or like one soundstage and um not that that makes it any different but i i like the use of of media in it i like the use of television i like um the the whole thing with the uh commercial in the beginning with the farley's fabulous foods and all that stuff and there's like the five f's and they're all like it looks like a swastika you know in a way and kind of reminded me of like um a fake commercial out of Putney Swope or something, um, sort of commentary on commercialism. If I spent another time watching it, I think I'd get more out of it where I didn't feel like I was pressed for time while I was like trying to make dinner and pay attention at the same time. So uh, I, I probably missed quite a bit. I really think that there's a lot to shock treatment that people don't necessarily see. I didn't necessarily like it the first time that I saw it, but I definitely appreciate it a lot more now. I feel like some of it is kind of uh, manufactured when it comes to the Farley Flavors thing. I mean, as they're doing the F4 kind of thing, it's like, oh, they're, you know, people in the audience are probably shouting, like, you know, fart and fuck and the F word fa- fag and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, Oh really? You know, it just, it felt like there were pauses there for some of the line readings instead. But I think if I can ignore that and I have kind of grown to ignore that, that it does have such a nice pointed mes- message about media. And it is talking about reality television before reality television 
was a reality that it um I, I can definitely appreciate it for what it is and i do enjoy this i think the songs are fucking tremendous i really love a lot of those i actually think it's an improvement some of the songs over rocky horror in terms of the um the intricacies of them um at times and and i think this might just have to do like what we talked about the the whole reference being mostly 1950s you know right uh so it's much more simpler uh rocky horror and i think that's the reason why they they still resonate is because they are simple and i think the shock treatment has a bit more interesting things going on with the music um the the one that i was as i was watching it as i go you know i'm amazed somebody hasn't used this in a commercial and what it was was the the black dress as far back as i can remember being you know a a, a healthy male um with you know all kinds of female friends is that it's always like women will always say, well, you have to have a black dress. Like you have to have like, like a classic black dress. Like that's, that's what you need. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, this is, this is great. You know, like someone could take this and use it in some way. I figured in some sort of marketing for, you know, trying to sell black dresses. (laughs) And what I liked too, is that there's a mix as far as, you know, you've got a punk rock song, you've got kind of a disco-y type song, and there's just, it feels like it's more of an, um, speaking to the different music of the time rather than the 50s. But I think the 50s stuff works for Rocky Horror just because of the whole idea of Brad and Janet kind of being stuck in the 50s and everything. And it's it's so fascinating to me, this whole, and we've talked about this on another episode, and I'll be damned if I can remember which one it was, this weird... 50s nostalgia that was happening in the 70s and it was just like so this is yet another instance of it it kind of turns everything on its head which i appreciate you know this is not happy days looking lovingly back at the 50s when it's set in the 70s this is not greece you know this is and which is kind of ironic because barry bostwick was um originally that's what he was cast in as danny zuko in greece but you know this is like taking greece and turning it on its head i mean there's some dark stuff in greece don't get me wrong but it's definitely much more friendly and especially the movie version compared to you know what some of these other things where it was like man maybe this the 50s weren't so good maybe you guys were walking around with blinders on which is kind of what i see more with rocky horror how sentimental so, Rob, looking at Rocky Horror with very fresh eyes, and I really kind of appreciate that you are not a um, Rocky fan, as it were, why do you think that Rocky Horror kind of turned into this touchstone for so many people? Well, I think a lot of it, like I said, traces to Ziggy Stardust, at least in, in my view. You know, It was at the time when Bowie was coming out, he was playing with, you know, androgyny, he was playing with sexuality, and that was huge. I mean, Ziggy Stardust was the album that kind of put him over. I mean, he had done some stuff before then, you know, Space Oddity and things like that, but really, when people talk about Bowie, they're talking about that era where he started to get more theatrical, he started to bring in these these things related to, you know, sexuality and playing with, with gender and androgyny and all that stuff. So I think there's part of, I think part of it has to do with that zeitgeist, like we were talking about before, sort of, uh, 
uh, people working in the same the, the, the same ideas in, in, in a similar era. I, so so I can understand how that plays to that. And then also, like we were talking about the 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 aspects of what would become punk a year later or so, and those things that are in there. So the the idea of outsiders, you know, uh, the idea of camp, you know, humor, just all of that that's in there. And like I said, the songs are catchy. It's it's interesting to me that, like I said, the film had represented to me before I saw it, not so much a film on its own merit, but more of an experience and an idea for people that went to see it. Um, more like performance art on a mass group scale as opposed to, you know, I'm just going to sit here and eat my popcorn and watch the film. You know, it's like, no, I'm going to throw the popcorn and we're all going to make noise and interact with whatever's on the screen well now what you can do is when you go to see a movie you can just pull out your phone and you start live tweeting the movie while it's on i mean that's pretty awesome right well actually in china they want to start uh putting the tweets up on the screen there's a couple of theaters that are considering that so that to me is horrific my mother who took me to a lot of my early film experiences. I mean, I remember going to see a lot of movies with my mom and my mom always was incensed at people that would talk in movies. And this was obviously in the era before cell phones, but her whole thing was, if you want to talk, stay home because TV is free. It doesn't cost you anything. But if I'm paying, you know, at the time was like three bucks, five bucks, whatever it was when I was a kid, it's like, you need to shut the hell up because, you know, we're here to see the movie. We're not here to talk. And I paid good money. (laughs) So shut the hell up. And I, I sort of feel the same way with, um, with, with cell phones and, and all of that stuff. It's like, really, I, I, I used to complain when I was a kid in high school about, you know, attention span problems caused by supposedly MTV. I think in, the world we're in now it's i was listening to a piece on marshall McLuhan, and he said you know and this was back in the 60s he said this he goes you know basically living in our modern electronic world you have to be everywhere and, and nowhere at the same time and there's just this you know you can't have a point of view when you're everywhere and it's kind of true you know if you're going to be there and there and you're interacting with this it's like how are you paying any attention to this so it's um it would just be lovely if we could you know, once and for all, get people to shut the hell up and turn their goddamn phones off. <laughs> I'll get off my I'll get off my soapbox now. A lot of soapbox stepping on this episode. I find it very interesting that um, there's never there have been a lot of puff pieces about Rocky Horror over the years. Uh, the one thing that always got me was that when people would talk about this film, they didn't necessarily understand the cult around it, and some people would actually claim kind of like The Room, they would say, Rocky Horror is such a bad movie that people come in and they throw things at the screen and they talk over the movie. And it's like, no, not necessarily. Like, I can see that with The Room, but I don't see that with Rocky Horror. No, actually, I did that at The Saint and I got thrown out for talking back to that film at the Dollar <laughs> Show, which is, in my memory, the only time that I ever got booted out of a... um out of a theater and it was a second run so it was only a dollar show so uh, the saint with val kilmer yeah i got tossed out of that fucking thing <laughs> and elizabeth's shoe yeah i wouldn't shut up because i was just like this movie's terrible i just started making fun of it and elizabeth shoe as a nuclear fucking scientist who keeps the formula in her bra yeah. 
Yeah. So I kept like making fun of it, and somebody in like the four people that were in the <laughs> dollar show, two of which was me and the other person I was sitting with, uh, told the ushers, and they came in, and they're like, "Yeah, you got to go." I'm like, "All right." Whatever. The dollar show was so sloppy. I I watched um, the first twenty minutes of a few good men at the Dollar Show once, and they never put on the anamorphic lens, so it was just all this like tall, skinny actors uh, <laughs> going around, and I'm just like, is anybody going to go tell them to put on the anamorphic lens? Am I the only person here that is oh. having a problem with this? And I just sat there as long as I could. Before I fi- I was finally the guy that went out and told them, but I was like, nobody else complained about this. What is the matter with you people? The 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 one for me was there was a theater um, near my house where I grew up that threw not only the original number of that theater, which I think was like theater three, and then when they remodeled theater nine. They never bothered to fix the aperture plate, and I used to go up oh. there and I would complain. And I go, "You guys are projecting the optical soundtrack." Yeah, I'm like, I can see the squiggly line on the side of the screen. Like, put the right aperture plate in. Oh, okay. I'm like, I can. I'm like, either that, or I can go up and fix it right now. You know, because I right. worked in projection and oh, take care of it. I go there again, and it's like, is it in theater nine? Yeah, I'm like you. And I go in there, and once again, it's still there. And we're talking like over three or four years that this was like that. It was just, yeah. It's, it, and that was a first run. That wasn't even a dollar show. So anyway, see, we're we're just the kings of digression today. We're just, we're getting into all these uh, sides and territory that I'm sure most people who want to listen to, about Rocky Horror are not interested in. One of the reasons why we were doing this show, there actually, it was kind of this weird things that happen. We've talked about doing a Rocky show for a while, but it was one of those like Blade Runner shows where it's like, what can we say about Rocky Horror that other people haven't said before? And when it came to Blade Runner, it was like, okay, we can find stuff that people haven't said before. When it comes to Rocky Horror, it's a little bit tougher. And there's definitely a lot of interest in this film, still is a lot of interest. I mean... We were offered um, the new Rocky Horror Treasury book a few weeks ago, which is this kind of nice little book. It's got the uh, like sound panel over on the right-hand side where you can hit uh, for each chapter. It's a, a different song from Rocky Horror, so you hit those, and it plays a little bit from the, the songs and everything. And I'm curious about some of the rights when it comes to that, because some of the sound clips are like, you know, one's two seconds long, the other one's like 30 seconds long, so it's like... Could you only play a couple seconds from the song or whatever? But I was kind of hoping that it would be more like the audience participation thing. Like whenever they say Brad Majors, you go asshole. And if they say Janet Weiss, you go slut. So it's like they didn't have that, unfortunately. So it's just this kind of, you know, the songs there. But it's it's good. I have to say this book, it's pretty short. I read it in about a half an hour. There are definitely more comprehensive books when it comes to Rocky Horror, but this one was uh, a quick read, fairly well done, and it was done by two guys who are just kind of legends in the Rocky Horror field. Sal Piro, who is like the guy when you talk about Rocky Horror, he's like, you know, fan club number one member, you know, he's got the card with like number 001 on there. And then uh, Larry Vizel, who is the co- 
producer of, and I could be wrong about that, of uh, Rocky Horror Save My Life, a new um, a new documentary that I've actually given to twice now. I gave to it in pre-production, and now they're collecting funds for post-production. The pre-production, I think, was on Kickstarter. Post-production's over on Indiegogo. We'll have links over to that at uh, projection-booth.com. So I was able to speak to both Sal and to Larry about that, and then um, also talk to Sean Stutler, who's the other producer-slash-director of Rocky Horror Saved My Life. So it was kind of a nice meeting of the minds when it came to these three guys with two shared projects between them and a love of Rocky Horror that goes back for, in Sal's case, all the way back to the beginning. So it was uh, good to be able to speak to these guys and be able to help promote Rocky Horror Save My Life, which really, like I was saying, there's kind of a dearth of documentary stuff about the film and really the way that it has impacted people's lives over the years. I mean... I've shared my Rocky Horror stories here, albeit as short as they are, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that have a lot more memories and a lot more fun things to say about Rocky Horror, and I'm glad that these folks are bringing these stories to the screen. But I think the other part of this was is that we decided to do the episode because we also received an email from someone who had written the book and said that, hey, we'd like to talk to you guys. And we knew that uh, 2015 would be the uh, the 40th anniversary of the release of the film. And we thought to ourselves, well, we could wait until next year. But then again, you know, these other projects are trying to, to raise some attention and awareness and money in order to finish off uh, like the documentary, as you were saying. So, um, and we thought, what better way uh, to share Halloween with you than to uh, do this special episode? So, yeah, the documentary, the funding for that finishes on the 31st, appropriate Halloween. So we figured, let's hurry up and get this thing done, put this out there, and then people will have just a couple days to be able to donate to Rocky Horror Save My Life. If you haven't given money to Rob's project, I would probably send a few more bucks towards that, but definitely. Definitely Rocky Horror Save My Life is a project that needs some funding as well. So I've given to both. Don't feel obligated to give to both Rob's project and Rocky Horror Save My Life. But if you want to, go right ahead. That's absolutely fine. So why don't we go ahead. We're going to take yet another break. And we're going to play. We might as well play all three interviews because these guys are all kind of tied together. So we're going to do Sal Piro, Larry Vizel, and Sean Stutler. Bing, bang, boom. One right after another. My name is Sal Piero. I'm from New York City. And for the last 38 years or so, I have been president of the Rocky Horror Picture Show Fan Club. Now, you have kind of become synonymous with Rocky Horror. How do you feel about that? When I first went to see Rocky Horror, I really loved it. And I've always loved the movie, and I continue to love the movie. And it's kind of, you know, kind of fun and it's it's a privilege that people associate me with with Rocky. You know, it's very hard to explain to people sometimes people out of the loop. <laughs> like they go, "Oh, you're from Rocky Horror," and people think, "Oh, you that I was in the movie or I made the movie." No, I came after the movie and uh I became synonymous because I was one of the original people that started the audience participation that spread throughout the world. And I became president of the fan club, and I've been involved with Rocky ever since. What was your first time like? 
The first time I went to see Rocky, I went with a couple of friends. It had been recommended by a friend of mine who had seen it a number of times. And that didn't, you know, I was really understood what he meant when he said he saw it a number of times. Because if I liked something, I would see it a number of times. And Rocky was just, it was amazing. It was, there was a spirit in the theater and an excitement that we were all discovering this great movie together. And uh, people were cheering and laughing and applauding. And uh, I went home that night. I made sure we were in the village. I bought the soundtrack that night in a late night record store. And I went home and I listened to the soundtrack over and over. And we went back the next night and the next week and the next week and the next week. What were the showings like at this time? In the early days, it was more just... People were applauding and singing along with the songs and cheering Frank, booing Dr. Scott. <laughs> and uh, uh, then it all started to happen because there were a number of people and we'd get to know each other because we'd wait online together to see the movie twice a weekend, every week. And it was a growing number of regulars. And little by little, it we knew the movie so well that there was one guy in the balcony who anticipated a couple of uh, scenes and he shouted out a couple of lines and we all cheered and applauded and we thought, oh, that's funny. And so we'd, we'd think of other spots to yell lines and people were coming in costume and people were bringing props and uh, the rice thing began and then the newspapers on the head and there's a light and plastic gloves and, uh, you know, just all that. And it was... It all seemed natural. It seemed like a natural extension for all of us who loved the movie so much that we wanted to be part of it. What would you say kind of the timeline is between when you're first going to see it and it's singing along with the show until there's the rice, the newspapers, the talk back to the screen, and were people acting it out in the front of the theater by this time as well? Well, what happened was that the acting out actually... uh, became this thing where somebody handed me a giant ring and when Janet sings it's nicer than Betty Monroe had and shows a ring I stood up with this giant ring and just showed it to the audience and the next week somebody put a light on me and there'd also be the time warp which was a natural people would get up and just dance in their seat and then one week we all rushed to the front of the theater and danced and it was so funny. We got to the part where Columbia does a tap solo and there was nobody. We, we hadn't even choreographed or anything. We hadn't even just, we just did this spontaneously. So there was nobody to really dance Columbia's tap dance. So I just jumped into the fray and I tap danced. <laughs> Somebody put a light on me. Well, deservedly so within two or three weeks, there was a, a young lady dressed as Columbia and she'd be doing the tap dance. And there was this woman named Dory Hartley and she dressed as Frank. She was considered like the first participatory Frank. And, uh, when he makes his first arrival, she would jump up in her seat and throw her cape off. Oh, well, that was just a bit. But within weeks, that bit went to doing the whole number. So somebody would do the tap dance, and somebody would do Frank's first number. And, somebody, and little by little, 
everybody was dressing as, as each of the individual characters, and they were doing all the musical numbers. And at first, it was just the musical numbers and little bits. And within you know weeks and months, we just added to it and added to it and added to it. And we do comedy bits. We do realistic recreations of what was going on, on the screen. And we were acting out the whole movie. Which came first, the audience participation album or the book? The audience participation album was actually first. That was in 1983. And the audience participation book, I think, was 91. There was a trade paperback that came out in the 70s that Fox had licensed called the Rocky Horror Show book. And they called that the Bible in the old days. And it was basically everything from the play right up to the making of the movie. And it started with some of the audience participation. But that came out like in 78. Uh, And then in 90, I wrote Creatures of the Night, which actually chronicled the entire, everything that the audience did. In other words, my book began where a lot of other books ended, which would be the making of the movie. You could see how things progressed and went from theater to theater to theater. And then I did A Creatures of the Night 2 on top of it, which was the next five years. I was at a book signing for the most recent book this week, and somebody came with all the Creatures books who wanted me to sign all of them, which, which I thought was cool. Now, I know you started the Rocky Horror Fan Club, what, 1977, this is? yeah. How did you kind of know that there were other people outside of just the Waverly crowd that were enjoying what you were enjoying, and how did this kind of participation and everything spread? What happened was, the reason why we started the fan club was we wanted to run a convention and invite the stars of the movies and just, you know, and celebrate Rocky Horror. So we thought it would be a good idea to form a fan club and sell memberships and, and, you know, get funds. This way we could run a convention. Well, three weeks after we started the fan club, we had a member in Australia. And we thought, oh, my God, this is really all over the place. And we also knew, you know, through the grapevine that there was a, uh, the second midnight showing had started in Austin, Texas, and that other theaters were slowly starting. And we also heard that other theaters were picking up the audience participation. I mean, I had a situation where I had created this unique line in New York, you know, not one of these where you just like, the tires getting kicked and you yell, kick it. It was right before the criminologist would say, uh, and so I, one night I yelled out and Betsy Ross used to sit home and so, and so, and then the criminologist looked at me and said, and so, so I went to 20th century Fox out in California to have a meeting with, with, with the licensing department to work with them with the fan club and, you know, get permissions and things like that. And I thought, well, we're going to see Rocky in L.A. And I couldn't wait to yell my Betsy Ross line. And there I was 3,000 miles from home, and I'm going to yell the line. And the whole audience was yelling it already. It had spread, it had spread across the country. And that's not a line that, you know, somebody else would come up with. I mean, there are certainly more, uh, you know, elemental lines that can be done but that was kind of a unique thing and I couldn't believe that people would go to New York see it and then carry their lines the lines or the participation back to their theaters and it spread like wildfire 
when did you decide to start writing the books about stuff? I had worked with Lou Adler and 20th Century Fox for doing the um, the anniversaries. Like we we did the 10th anniversary in New York. And I was the one who helped them put together the show and did a lot of the publicity, did radio interviews and things like that. So I was working with the producer of the film and for special events throughout the years. And when we were about to do the 15th anniversary, um, they approached me about writing a book. And so I wrote The Creatures of the Night book. And then five years later, when we were approaching the 20th anniversary, I wrote Creatures 2. And this past year, uh, as we're approaching the 40th anniversary, yes, I said 40, um, they had this new book they wanted to do with this company, and uh, it was called The Rocky Heart Treasury. And um, they asked me if I wanted to write it. And I wrote it with Larry Vizel. And Larry is a great, great guy who really has picked up the torch of Rocky. Uh, he's become a great representative of the fans of Rocky. And he's helped me so much because he's much more, he's a computer guy and I'm not. He's helped me, you know, bring the fan club into the, <laughs> into the new century. And uh, so Larry and I wrote this book together and I was happy to, to work with him. Why do you think, and I know this is a million-dollar question, but yeah. why do you think Rocky Horror has lasted this long? I mean, some people might look at this and say, come on, it's just a movie. Well, I think one of the main reasons is the whole midnight thing, and it becomes a rite of passage for young people. And then, because it becomes like a rite of passage, sometimes people will then wait till their younger brothers and sisters get a little older and they'll bring them. And then the next thing you know, they're bringing their children to Rocky. And the next thing you know, they're bringing their grandchildren to Rocky. And uh, it becomes one of those things. And the whole audience participation thing, it becomes, where else can you go at midnight and, and and act incredibly crazy, you know, and you're not in a bar, you're not on drugs, you know what I mean? You're just at a movie, having a good time, shouting at the screen, watching people perform. It's one of those things that has just been passed on from generation to generation. Everybody used to think because the movie was coming out on video in the 90s that it would screw Rocky up, and it didn't. All it did was give people a chance to own the film, but there's a big difference between sitting in your house all by yourself and watching it on a screen or being in a theater with 400 people while they're yelling and shouting and dancing in the aisles. I know that you've been very key in coming up with kind of the, the text, the Bible for everything as far as the participation. Were you also part of the kind of uh, shadow play in front of the screen too? Well, the thing is, I didn't really come dressed as any of the characters. But what happened was, when we were at the Waverly, which was that first theater where it all started, I was always the comedy guy. So I would do a comical version of Janet during Touch It, Touch It, Touch Me. I'd come out and I'd be, I am a big guy, a big hairy chest. And I'd come out with a bra and slip on and do Touch It, Touch It, Touch Me. And then this girl at the theater started doing Rocky. And it just became this very funny bit. Uh, so no, I was never one of those people. Like I was never the Frank. I was never the Brad, the Columbia, the Magenta, the Riff Raff. I became kind of like, 
the master of ceremonies. And now every theater that shows Rocky that has a cast has a master of ceremonies. So, and the master of ceremonies welcomes the virgins. And if I haven't explained that yet, virgin is somebody who hasn't seen the film. Uh, so there's a welcoming of the virgins, celebration of somebody's birthday, local announcements and things like that, comedy bits, musical numbers that the cast will do, some Rocky-related, some not. Uh, so it, beca- it became a whole show before the show, and that's kind of been one of my biggest uh contributions was starting that whole thing with the show before the show and the announcements. And that all came out of people in the early days were lighting matches or gliders for there's a light with newspapers on their head and became a fire hazard. And the theater was going to close down. They said, we can't allow this and nobody would stop. So the manager of the theater called me aside one night and said, look, you seem to be one of the ringleaders here. She says, we want you to get up before the movie and make an announcement and plead to everybody that they're going to close Rocky down unless they use flashlights or something else, but they can't use open flames. So that night I quieted the audience, made the, told them, listen, I'm just as big a fan as everybody here in this theater. You all know who I am. You see me here every week. I said, but they're going to close this down if we continue to have open flames. And that night there wasn't a single open flame and the whole, and the whole audience applauded that with their approval and they were happy. And then the manager said, that was good. Now do that every week. So she, in a sense, kind of assigned me this role of the MC. Well, the second or third week, I'd get up. People would hand me notes. It was Janet's birthday or this one, you know, just graduated from college or let's hear for uh this guy is bringing his girlfriend and it's her first time and she's a virgin. Let's welcome her. And that became a whole routine. When did you first kind of get approached by 20th Century Fox? You talked about, you know, what they had been up to as far as supporting the film and everything. But when did you start that relationship with them? Well, I didn't have, they didn't approach me as much as that. When we were starting a fan club, we approached the licensing people just to make sure that we everything we were doing was kosher. But Fox has kind of stayed out of it. They've let the fans take over. Um, but the, the relationship I've had over the years is with the producer of the film who kind of oversees everything. And he's not specifically with Fox, although he produced the movie with Fox. And that's Lou Adler. And Lou Adler is known for the Mamas and the Papas, Jan and Dean, Cheech and Chong, Carol King's multi-million selling album that he produced. He's directed some films. And so it was Lou who realized the value of the fan club and promoting things and being part of the audience participation album and this and that. And so it's, it's Lou that I really been working with and we have a great mutual respect for one another. How do you see yourself as kind of this ambassador of Rocky horror? You know, I try not to, to be big about it. You know what I mean? I answer people's questions. I attend events, but I always make and, and this isn't an act. I always make people realize it's not me. It's them. It, you know, I'm one person. And 
it's all of the casts and the people who dress up and the people who go week after week. They're really the ambassadors of Rocky. They're the ones that have been keeping Rocky alive. And when I sign books, sometimes I'll say thank you for keeping Rocky alive. Because without those people, I wouldn't be on the phone with you right now talking, you know? You were even out signing books today, correct? Yeah. I, I was at New York Comic Con. <laughs> I'm getting old, though. It was too crowded, <laughs> too many lines. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting. There were a whole bunch of people came in Rocky costume, and I got to see some old friends, one in particular who had been at our theater for many years. So it was a good day. I just got back a little while ago. Tell me about the new book. How did this one kind of come about? Fox was licensing products for the 40th anniversary. There really hadn't been a studio-produced book um, since the 70s they were approached by this company they had done a book a great book called the christmas story treasury and the christmas story is that great movie that they play over and over at christmas time with ralphie and the little gun and and, and the kid getting his tongue stuck to the frozen pipe and stuff and they made this great little treasury book on the Christmas story with little memorabilia and interviews and, and sound bites. And they wanted to do the same for Rocky. So they approached Fox, they approached Lou, and um, a deal was struck. And then they uh, were told that I would be a good person to write it. And as I told you before, uh, I didn't want to write it by myself. I wanted to include Larry, and Larry and I did it together. After writing all of these books on Rocky Horror Picture Show, how do you kind of stop yourself from going nuts and just even making it bigger than you have before? You know, I have other interests. I don't go crazy. I, you know, Rocky is part of my personality. It's certainly a very strong presence in my life. Um, but I don't overdo things. You know what I mean? I, I really... Uh, I'm one of those people that makes sure when I write something, it's it's written in a way that everybody can understand it. And, uh, you know, I've been very sane about Rocky. and uh, But I don't let it take over my entire life. You know, I have other interests and I've done other work and stuff like that. But Rocky will always be number one in my life as far as uh, something that drove me. I mean, it was... We're talking about 38-plus years of being involved. That's a long time. What's the current scene in New York now as far as Rocky's screenings, and do you still attend? Rocky, you know, there's some, there's some theaters around the country that have played Rocky longer in one theater. But since we opened at the Waverly back in 76, there has been a Rocky cast in New York since then. Uh, it's just that they've gone from different theaters. We went from the Waverly to the H Street Playhouse to the um, there was a, the East Side Cinema, Movie Land, H Street, the East Side uh, Theater, and now they're in Chelsea. I don't attend anymore. I go to special events. I go to conventions. I had been in the Guinness Book of World Records for seeing the movie more than anybody else. Um, that record is now out of the books because they found out that Fox supported the fan club and paid us a stipend to run the fan club. So uh, what happened was they considered it such 
that it tainted the record because uh, it was like saying you were the projectionist and you saw the movie more than anybody else. So, but they never replaced the record. There's no record in Guinness that that forced somebody seeing a movie more than anybody else. And part of the reason is there were so many Rocky Horror fans around the world who have seen it over and over and over and over and over again that th- there's no way to really prove who has seen it the most. They didn't even know for sure that I had seen it the most when they put me in the book. I think they they put me in the book because I was the one getting all the publicity. And what was very funny was uh, the number that they had come up with was 800 and something, which was right around the time, which was a true number at the time. And I replaced an old woman from New Zealand who had seen The Sound of Music 700 times. But now... I mean, 800 is nothing for the for the hardcore fans. They're, you know, I'm way past 800. I'm probably in the thousands somewhere, but I stopped counting. And there are other fans, two, three, and 4,000, who have been with Rocky for years. And then you even got to be in shock treatment, right? Yeah, I did a cameo in shock treatment. I was really helping them film a documentary called Rocky Horror Treatment, where I was trying to be the liaison between the Rocky experience and going into shock treatment. So they flew me to London to interview the people on the set and be part of this uh, documentary experience. And while I was there, they put me in a costume and put me in the background. And uh, I really wasn't in the British Union, so I really wasn't allowed to be in the film in a, in a role. But I could stand in the background. So I got to... Yeah, but you, if, you, if you try to look for me on video, you can't. If you see, if you see the movie on a big screen, you could, you could see me for a second or two. What was the whole fame experience like? Well, what happened was they were filming the movie Fame in New York, and at the time it was called Hot Lunch, and that was the working title. They found out later when they were in post-production that the name Hot Lunch was being used by some porno movie, so they went to Fame, which is a much better title for the movie anyway. What happened was they were scouting kids high school kids with performing experience to be in the movie. And when they were interviewing kids at the School of Performing Arts and asked them what kind of activities they did on the side, a lot of them said, oh, we go to Rocky Horror, we get up, we perform, and stuff like that. So they called me up and they said, look, we're bringing a casting director and the director, and we're going to come and see your show because we're looking for teenage boys and girls to audition for fame or hot lunch at the time. And I thought, oh, that's great. You know, maybe one of my kids will get (laughs) a big part or something. And that night I was doing my usual shtick in front of the theater, welcoming people. and, And it was going on a little long. And some idiot in the back of the theater who had never seen the movie before and didn't know that it was this whole cult experience, he screamed out, get on with the show. And I said, this is the effing show, buddy. And if you don't like it, go see the movie somewhere else, you know, like Staten Island. So So it was very funny. Uh, The whole audience got up and gave me a standing ovation for putting the guy in his place. And the guy sunk to the floor or whatever, left. And um, a week or two later, I get this phone call. And it was the casting director. And she said, look, um, 
Mr. Parker would like to see the following people and named the girl who played this, the boy who played that, and stuff like that, you know, to audition. And he'd also like to see you. And I said, okay. So I thought, why does he want to see me? I, you know, I was in my uh, late 20s, and this movie was about high school kids. So I get to the to the, my uh, allotted time, and there are people in front of me and people behind me, and they all have a script that they're looking at or a side to audition with. And I was just told to sit there and not given a script. So when I go in, he introduced himself to me and says, Hi, you know, I'm Alan Parker. I said, Oh, I know who you are. You were just nominated for an Oscar for Midnight Cowboy. I mean, Midnight uh, Express. And... Um, so he goes, oh, yes, yes. He says, well, you know, he says, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed my experience at Rocky Horror. And when I was there, I spoke with the president of Fox about including some Rocky Horror scenes in my movie. And what I saw you do with that heckler was one of the greatest pieces of live theater I had ever seen. And we loved it so much. We want to recreate that scene in Rocky and also use the whole getting up in front of the screen Rocky as a plot point for one of the characters who got nervous in front of audiences. And I thought, well, that's great. Never realizing the effect that this movie, who knew it was going to be a big movie if it ever get shown. Well, fame became a big hit. After that, because of the exposure, Rocky Horror was packed for years. This was in 81, and it was packed for years to come because of fame. And I played myself. I had a monologue and, and handled the heckler. And uh, one of the girls in our cast actually had a small role in the film. And they used all of our people for the Rocky Horror scene. So it was uh, quite an experience. All right, we'd like to welcome everyone here to the Rocky Horror Picture Show here at the 8th Street Playhouse. And all of our regulars would like to wish a warm welcome to all you virgins. Now, we have some special occasions tonight. Tonight is Gail's birthday. We have a special button for a special young lady. Tonight is Christine's 150th time. Now we have a special warning from the management tonight. No lit candles and no throwing of food at the screen, understand? Get on with the show. Hey, this is the fucking show, buddy. And if you don't like it, you go see the movie in Staten Island. Boy, is he in for a surprise tonight. All right, for the cheers. Give me an R! Oh. Give me an O! Oh. Give me a C! C. Give me a K. K! Give me a Y! Y. What's it spell? Rocky. I can't hear you! Rocky. One more time! Rocky. Give me an E! e. Give me an A! K. What kind of time are we gonna have tonight? My name is Larry Wiesel. And I am a Rocky Horror enthusiast. Let's go with enthusiast. A regular Frankie fan. That's a good way to go. I've been involved with Rocky Horror since 1992 when my friend Dave wanted to go see the movie, but he didn't want to go see it with someone who had seen it before. And he called all of his friends, and I was barely really his friend. I was more of an acquaintance. I was the first one who hadn't seen it and wanted to go see it. 
Uh, and he wanted to see it with someone who hadn't seen before, and I fit the bill. So uh, I went, and what is it, 22 years later, it's uh, been quite the life changer. What was your first experience like? It was July 4th weekend, and I distinctly remember there being a girl outside who was wearing a bikini top and uh, cut-off jean shorts, and she had an American flag painted on her face, and she was upset that there you know, was such a small audience, and there was you know over 100 people in the crowd. And I was thinking, wow, what would it be like if this you know, whole place was packed? And it was kind of, it was, you know, still pretty full, but I don't remember seeing much of like a, a cast per se. Uh, I remember there being uh, people running up and down the aisles during Hot Patootie, and I remember uh, during the Virgin Ceremony, I don't remember them making any real announcements before the show, but I do remember them calling up Virgins as the movie began. And then we had to get into the aisles and get on our knees and beg for a cherry. And I remember thinking, this isn't funny. This is awkward. Like, I, all right, I'll beg for a cherry. It didn't come across to me as anything really funny and, you know, awkward. But I was like, all right, that's fine. I'll do it. And kind of since then, I've, I've realized, ah, the importance of, of having an MC that kind of gets everybody in on the joke is, is kind of important to Rocky Horror. So that was my first experience with diversionization. I remember they played a cartoon. It was called Life with Tom. It was a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Uh, and the movie was nothing fantastic. I didn't think I would be going back again. I did like that people were yelling lines. I thought that was really funny. The, the audience participation was hysterical. The stuff people were yelling was hysterical. Um, there was this guy uh, whose nickname was Wombat, and he was yelling questions that I was answering as the, you know, that I was, I was getting ready to answer them. And then the movie would answer it for me. And I thought it was hysterical. Uh, and then once the movie was over, I was like, all right, well, I'm not going back to that. That was a, that was fun. But the next Saturday, uh, I was hanging out with Dave again. And, uh, we said, Oh, why don't we go back to Rocky horror and bring friends? And 22 years later, here I am. Where was this first place for you? Paramus, New Jersey, cinema 35 Paramus, New Jersey, which has since been, uh, torn down, uh, and rebuilt, I think it's a Starbucks now, which is somewhat upsetting. But uh, I still like getting coffee there, so I can't complain too much. So it's one thing to go and sit in the audience, have a good time, interact with the film, and do that fairly often, once a week or whatever. It's another thing to kind of devote the time that you have to the film. What kind of was that tipping point for you? What made you kind of devote a little bit more than a regular Saturday night? So there were a couple of a couple of things. First of all, I went to college in Albany, and they didn't have Rocky Horror up there. So it was somewhat of a case of absence makes the heart grow fonder. Like I realized, oh, all my friends are there. All those scantily clad ladies are down there. I should probably go visit that show a little more often. So I, I would go home for the weekends, and not every weekend, but I'd go home and, and come see the show. And then uh, the other thing that kind of brought me to the next level, so to speak. There were a couple of things. First off, I went to a convention in uh, Washington, D.C., and I remember, again, going to that convention. It was a small little gathering and thinking, oh, this is fun. They have people from all over the country. It was probably like maybe 8,500 people in this theater, and it was it was a fun show. Uh, they had people in from uh, the Frank, I remember, was from Chicago, uh, and I don't really remember where everyone else is from, but I, I've known the Frank since Gene Shivari. He's actually a really good Frank. Um, so I saw him over there at, in Washington, D.C., first time I went to a convention, and I thought, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll throw a convention next year. I'll throw something together. Uh, not realizing the undertaking of throwing a, a national convention for Rocky Horror when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. 
Uh, and not that I could imagine an 18 or 19 year old these days being like, no, yeah, I'll do that. So I think it was my naivete that kind of brought me to the next level was I didn't think it was going to be that hard. And it was a little overwhelming, but I got it done. And a lot of people still talk fondly about those Albany conventions. Uh, and also uh, the collecting angle was the other thing that kind of brought me to the next level, so to speak, was uh, there was a guy selling photos on my campus center uh, and from all sorts of movies. And I asked him what he had from Rocky Horror. He had a couple of pictures here and there. And one of them was, I think, uh, Brad's photo from the criminologist's book, uh, from the narrator's book that he uses during the movie. And I thought, oh, I should try and get all of those photos. And uh, then I went to a comic book store and I got the comic book that was used in that book that was in the movie, sort of meta there. And then I went from that to cracking down as many photos as I possibly could. And then my collection grew from photos to just paper goods like posters and books and things like that. Now it's just about anything I can get my hands on. So, yeah, From what I hear, you have a fairly uh, respectable collection. Yeah, uh, I do. I have one of the biggest collections of Rocky Horror memorabilia in the world. There's a few other really hardcore collectors, but I have some stuff that uh, you know people kind of drop their, their jaws on like, wow, that's kind of amazing. I have a Japanese program that is signed by every member of the cast, except for Peter Hangwood. He's the only one I'm still trying to get. Hopefully, I'll get to him next time I go to London. Uh, I have several of the 40 by 60 uh, legs posters, which are the biggest uh, Rocky Horror posters that were made for the movie. Uh, I have, like I said, photos. I have tons and tons, just albums of behind-the-scenes photos from the from the movie. Uh, some of them came from a there was a guy who was charged with cleaning out a storage closet at 20th Century Fox, and there it, it had flooded, and he was told, "Oh, just throw everything out." So of course he's going through it, and he's like, "Oh my God, these are photos." and negatives and slides and everything from every famous 20th Century Fox movie from the 1970s and 80s. I'm not throwing a lot of this stuff out, so he kept it. And then years later, of course, eBay comes along. He started selling his stuff on eBay. Now, of course, 20th Century Fox kind of put a stop to him, but it wasn't before I had bought one or two auctions and then ended up buying a whole bunch of stuff from him. So worked out in my favor. I have original costumes from the movie. I have uh, Little Mel Boussier. I have uh, Rocky's uh, floor show boa. Uh, so I've got that <laughs> and just lots and lots of stuff that, Oh, I have, um, the, uh, Michael White sold his, um, all of this. So Michael White is the producer, uh, I'm going um, the producer of the Rocky R picture show, uh, from the London perspective. And he saved all of the paperwork and correspondence and everything that he had from back in the day when he was putting together the Rocky R picture show. And one of the things I have is, Tim Curry's contract, Susan Sarandon's contract, Barry Boswick's contract, um, just all all there, like their original signatures and everything like that. Is it true that those contracts were signed in blood? I don't know if they were quite signed in blood. I think a few of them were signed in bitterness. And not really bitterness, but I, I showed, uh, I was at a, a horror convention not too long ago, and I, I met Barry Boswick, and I showed him that I had you know, the contract. Uh, and he said, oh, do you have Susan's contract? So I so showed him Susan Sarandon's contract, and he turns to page three and it's like, damn it, she made more than me. And he has it back. She had already done a couple movies by then and, you know, it, it's, those few thousand dollars I'm sure don't mean much now, nowadays. Uh, right. I can't imagine, I can't imagine any of the salaries they got for the movies compared to, I don't know, something that Tom Cruise would get today. So, or Susan Sarandon would get today for that matter. How did you get involved with Rocky Horror Save My Life documentary? Uh, so that was Sean Stutler. Um, the, the documentary kind of came about uh, from Sean wanted to really do a documentary that uh, reflected 
the community from inside the community, and it hasn't been done before. There have been a lot of other documentaries made, but they've all been kind of from the outside looking in as somewhat of a look at these weirdos, look at the weird thing these guys do every Saturday night, as opposed to, we all love to do this, let us show you why. And that was kind of Sean's vision for this, and I, I'm very thankful that he kind of brought me along with it. Uh, he was transplanted from Indiana to uh, New Jersey, and you know, I think he realizes that we both do good work together. And I'm very, very thankful that he's kind of brought me in on this and, and tried to make this work together. Yeah, I think a, a lot of it is he knows that I have a lot of, you know, contacts and, and, and good with talking with people and getting people to open up. So thank you, Sean, for bringing me in and, and, and getting on this road trip together. What have been some of the most satisfying things about making this stock? I think it's the stories. I really do like hearing people's stories. You know, there have been a lot of there have been a lot of stories that you'd sort of expect. And I don't want to sound terribly negative, but there there is somewhat of a okay, I understand that you, you tried to commit suicide and I get it. There are a lot of depressed people who found Rocky R and, and it saved their life. And it's kind of interesting because when you when you hear the story it's like, Wow, that's that's phenomenal, that's kind of amazing. But when you hear it over and over and over again, you're wondering, you know, all right, I get it or you're thinking Maybe there's something to that. Maybe there really is something to Rocky Horror being more than just, you know, this movie. Maybe it is actually the the thing that saves people's lives and that what changes people's lives and gives them a sense of belonging, a sense of community. You know, it's not just it's not just your your old B movie from the seventies. Um, but the stories that I've heard that kind of fascinated me. Uh, there was one story from this one guy who uh, his mother was very religious and he was going to a lot of you know, church services and things like that. And he was also going to Rocky Horror with his best friend. And they were uh, hanging out and at one point had gotten into a terrible car accident. And his friend died and he uh, was in a coma. And when he came out of the coma, uh, his mother had commented that, you know, none of the church friends had come to visit, but all of his Rocky Horror friends were always there coming and, and seeing him. And that was kind of made his mother realize this Rocky Horror thing isn't so bad. Uh, so I think that's kind of that, that was a really interesting story that kind of stuck with me. It was something that I had never heard before. Um, it's also really fascinating to see this from a generational perspective. I mean, you see people who are just getting involved now and just listening to to what they're talking about and and how Rocky Horror kind of opened their eyes to uh, just the knowledge of the world and and seeing what's around them. Uh, and also, you hear things from people who've been involved in this thing for forever. Just hearing the stories of of people who are now parents and have their kids going to Rocky Horror. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff going in and listening to people's personal stories about Rocky Horror and how it's just completely changed their lives. Like for me, like the fact that I met my wife through Rocky Horror means that my baby would not have existed were it not for Rocky Horror. And that's just something that kind of blows my mind that it's not just me that has that story. Lots and lots of people have that sort of story of were it not for Rocky Horror, this person would not actually exist. And that's kind of crazy. How did you meet your wife? Uh, so my wife, I met her the old fashioned way in a chat room on the internet while she was in high school. It was a Rocky Horror chat room. And we didn't start dating all those years ago. That was two, so probably 14, 15 years ago or so. And she was, uh, she lived in Pennsylvania. I lived in New Jersey and she had since uh, gone on and got married. And then years later we reconnected. Um, but she was a Rocky Horror fan uh, that was in a cast in uh, Delaware uh, and in Maryland. And 
Then she was going to school in, uh, she went to school in Indiana and then again in Pennsylvania. And then uh, she had gotten divorced and we then started hanging out. And one thing led to another and here I am with a baby. How do you think that the release of Rocky Horror on VHS kind of affected the fandom? So I got involved in the fandom after it had come out on VHS. So I'd only really heard the stories from before it had come out on VHS. I had only heard those stories. I never actually experienced the time before that. But everything that I've ever seen about it was in order to really kind of get a, a glimpse of the movie and, and to really get your costume together and, and see what was going on, you had to go to a theater to experience it. You couldn't just, you know, watch it from home and, and stuff like that. So there was nothing to really say. There was no way to experience outside the movie theater. And that really kind of stuck true for just really any movie back then. I mean, it's not the same as, as going to a movie theater when you're going to watch it on your home TV, right? Uh, so I think movies overall change, but Rocky Horror specifically, when it, when it came out on VHS, gave people the opportunity to experience in their living room. Now, that's good and bad, right? The good is that we get to see in detail what is going on on the screen, what is going on with these costumes, what is, you know, how do these people move? Can I practice the time warp? Can I practice hot patootie? Do I know this, you know, when he lifts his left hand as opposed to when he puts his right hand on his head, things like that, which is great. But the downside is that you now have people who have experienced the movie through a lens that is not the community and, and not what we've seen before. So attendance in theaters sort of changed, right? People started doing it at home. I think the internet kind of changed Rocky Horror a little bit more than the VHS did. Largely because before the internet, the way that people, all the misfits went to Rocky Horror. It was a place where any misfit could be accepted. And it still is that place, but now any misfit can be accepted in their own little group on the internet. Uh, so now we have people who are you know, hey, I really lo- I'm a band geek. You can hang out with band geeks across the country through the internet. Whereas before it was like, I wanted to go someplace to hang out, and that was what Rocky Horror was there for. Um, but what the flip side of it is now we have a much better way to target and market Rocky Horror to fans that are specifically fans of Rocky Horror, and that's the, the good news of the internet is. I'd say the internet changed more than VHS, but it definitely did change it when the VHS came out. When it comes to some of the other common themes that you're hearing while you're making the documentary, I want to take a stab in the dark and imagine that gender identity is one of those things. Oh, absolutely. Gender identity is definitely a common theme that I've heard. People are, are saying that, you know, Rocky Horror and the message of Don't Dream It Be It has finally given people the opportunity to say, I am going to go beyond just who I am. I'm actually going to you know, to live the life that I want to live because that's who I am on the inside. And if that isn't a story for, you know, both gender identity and also just coming out of the closet with your, um, with your sexual identity, it just fits perfectly. Tell me, how did you get involved with the Rocky Horror Treasury book? It wasn't really me that said, I'm going to write this book. Uh, the publishing company had gotten in touch with 20th Century Fox and with Lou Adler's office and Richard O'Brien's office. And they had kind of put this thing together and said, okay, great, we're going to come out with this great book, but we need someone to write it. Uh, so they, uh, Lou Adler contacted Sal Piero through, uh, initially, and the publishers had contacted us through the, the fan club website, and I helped Sal a lot with the fan club. And when the publishers contacted us through the website, I said, hey, Sal, did you see this? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. Lou contacted me about that. Uh, would you be interested in helping me write this? So we kind of put it together in a very short amount of time, and... 
Uh, it came out great. It's from all accounts, it seems to be a very short, you know, like a, a, a guide to Rocky Horror. If, if someone asks, what is Rocky Horror about? You can hand them this book, they can look at it and get the full 40 years in under 50 pages. How did you decide what to put in and leave out? Well, when you're given a gallon of information and a shot glass of space, it is a little difficult to, to figure out what it is that you can can't put in. Uh, we tried to stick to the basics and then throw in one or two factoids for the diehards, things that even the people who are, are most into Rocky Horror would, would never have known before. And one or two things are, are, were kind of new to me that, you know, that I discovered while, while researching the book. But yeah, a lot of it was edited out by the, uh, by the publishers and Richard O'Brien had a hand in saying, this can stay in, this can stay out. Uh, so in the end, it was, there's a lot less of than, uh, than what we originally intended. Between Sal and I and several other people in the community, we could probably write an encyclopedia of, of Rocky Horror, but I don't imagine it would actually be read by a large swath of people. So we had to say, what would interest a casual fan, the kind of person that owns it on DVD, that would, that's still a compelling story, uh, but not necessarily the person who is acutely aware of Rocky Horror. They, they don't need to know. They've, they've heard a lot of it before. But that doesn't mean that's all fast. It's not all fascinating. It is still all fascinating. And like I said, we threw in a couple of factoids here and there to kind of keep everybody interested. There's a lot of pictures that uh, are, are from uh, my collection uh, that are from the 20th Century Fox Vault that just haven't really seen the light of day in, in forever. So people are getting to experience some new stuff. And the other thing that's cool is the the sound, like when you actually open the book, there's the uh, the little buttons on the side that you can push the button and hear uh, a clip from a song from the movie. It's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I will tell you, between you and I, my cat loves to step on those buttons. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I wanted to go back to your collecting a little bit. What do you know is out there that you're dying to get your hands on? Not so much that I'm dying to get my hands on. There are one or two like photo collections that I've that I've heard of that I'd love to be able to buy. Um, props from the movie I'd love to get my hands on. Um, I heard recently that the statue of Janet in the lab uh, was still around, and I saw a picture of it, and it was painted uh, just to look uh, ridiculous. Um, the story that I was told was that after the movie, the crew took the statue and they painted. Uh, pubic hair on her, and they painted her nipples, and they left it at the at the um, at the studio where it was filmed. Um, so one of the guys who worked at the studio took this thing home and uh, painted it, uh, and his daughter had repainted it to look really ridiculous, like a like a Harlequin statue, um, and he kept it there. And it had been sitting in his kitchen for, you know, I guess almost forty years. And he said, "I'd like to sell it, but if you wanted." Three quarters of a million dollars for it. Now, holy cow! Yeah. Now, for three quarters of a million dollars, you probably could have gotten. I think even one of the DeLoreans from Back to the Future had sold for like less than that. So I would have gotten not only a prop from the movie, but also a fully functioning DeLorean. Uh, for three quarters of a million dollars, I probably could have gotten Susan Sarandon to hang out in my kitchen, standing in that pose for a little while. Right? I, I passed on that one, but it is still out there, and I would love to get it. Uh, the uh, the jukebox is still out there. I'd love to get my hands on that. Frank's throne, if that's still out there, I'd love to get my hands on that. I mean, uh, and ultimately the uh, the the Denton affair, the book that the narrator used, there's still stuff in there that I'd love to get my hands on. So, kind of your gateway. Yeah, my gateway, my gateway collection. When it comes to the shadow casting of uh, Rocky Horror, what role do you play? 
typically I play Eddie. These days I play Eddie, although I got into it. Um, originally, I think I wanted to play Eddie. I think I played him one week, and then uh, the next week I showed up at the theater. Uh, the girl who was playing the narrator uh, wasn't able to make it to the show, and as I'm coming in the theater, the cast director, Rob, uh, walked by and he goes, Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Points to me and goes, Hey, you're playing the criminologist. And I was like, okay. And here I am wearing a purple bathing suit and a t-shirt. And I said, I'm clearly ready for the role. Uh, but I went around the audience, uh, person to person and I found, uh, enough of a costume that I could put together and got up on stage and did the role. So my first role was really the criminologist and Eddie. Uh, and I still play Eddie most of the time. Uh, Eddie is a great character. He has three minutes and 47 seconds of the pure rock and roll. He comes out on stage like Godzilla, dances around, steals the spotlight, and dies. That's three minutes of the movie. How have you seen kind of the column response and the the audience participation? How has that changed for you over the over the years that you've been there? You know, you hear a lot of, particularly people in the old days who've who've seen it. Uh, would go and they'd say, "Oh, it was so sporadic. Like it was, it didn't start out where people were yelling all the time. It was people would just come up with a line here and there, and then that kind of grew, and it turned into somewhat of a script. Um, and even now, it's still a little bit of a script. I think that there's even just a general attitude of, you know, uh, and I think it goes back to to Nirvana, Teen Spirit, and Here We Are Now, Entertainment. Rocky Horror, you are you are the show. You become the show and create the show as you're as you're there." And I think in the 90s, there was a lot more room for new lines to be created. I would go home and think, oh, what pop culture reference can I shove into the show this week? And there's still people that do that, like what celebrity death can I shove into the show this week? Or what news story can I shove into the show this week? And that still happens, but it doesn't happen quite as often. I think people are still kind of set in their ways and, and all that, largely because the script is, is it fills up a lot of the movie. I really like the witty lines that are, are clever and, oh, I get that. That's a, that's a funny, cute reference. A lot of it, you know, there's a lot of crassness in the movie. And there's a place for that. But, you know, crassness does definitely not does not win against wit. I think witty lines, brevity also, like short little lines. Sometimes you hear these lines, they're just soliloquies. And it's like, okay, I get it. Thank you for doing your monologue, Shakespeare. But just these, the, the, the one brief line, like there was a line that I heard not too long ago that was really funny. And it's just as, as right after Frank dies and Rocky is, is frantically running over to Frank's corpse to pick him up, someone in the audience yelled out, uh, what is Helen Keller's dog's name? And Rocky goes, Urgh! I crashed up. I was on stage and I fell out of my wheelchair. I was playing Dr. Scott. It was so funny. These days, when they are singing There's a Light, when I was watching the, the film fairly regularly, the call was, where do you keep your new kids on the block records? And it was burning in the fireplace. Mm-hmm. What do the kids say these days? Oddly, the line has gotten older and more offensive. I've heard uh, Holocaust references that are pretty awful, but hilarious. I'm trying to think if there's anything recent that they say, you know, like, a, but no, no, no fire references have really come up recently that, that spring to mind. I'll tell you what, though. So back in the day, we always used to, you hold up lighters during that scene, but right. no one really does that anymore for a couple of reasons. One, theater fire codes, you know, you really can't hold up or smoke in the theater or anything like that anymore. And also the idea of, hey, let's put newspaper on our heads and hold a lighter. It's just not smart. So for some reason, those two scenes go together, and it's just not a good idea. Uh, People nowadays, I see them all holding up their cell phones, and uh, 
I'll, I'll sometimes joke like at the beginning of the show, hey, please don't light a lighter because uh, you don't want to burn down the theater. People will take out their phones and there's, there's an app on their phone that is just a lighter, you know, lit up. So I think that's kind of clever. What kind of stuff do you guys do for your pre-shows? So we'll do musical numbers or we'll do comedy sketches. Um, mostly these days we do videos. So Sean being the, the great video editor that he does, that he is, um, uh, we'll come up with some concept for a video and say, Hey, let's, let's put Rocky Horror characters in it and, and put it into something we can show before the show. Uh, it's difficult to really do pre-shows like we used to anymore, just because we're getting into the theater at 12:15. The thing about Hollywood that sucks is they are making their movies two and a half hours long. And, Theaters are still contractually obligated to show five showings a day. So because they're longer and longer, and they have to have a certain amount of time between each movie to get people in the theater and clean it up and all that, we're sometimes not getting it until well after midnight, which kind of sucks for a midnight movie when you have to do, you know, rules, announcements, pre-shows, uh, and stuff like that. So we don't do pre-shows as often as, as we used to. Uh, but when you show a video, a video is a really quick and easy way to kind of get that going and, and kind of get the, the crowd still into it and, and, and excited about what's going on, on yeah, as part of the show. Uh, so the most recent the most recent video we did was that song Selfie, Let Me Take a Selfie. Uh, we did a video of that using our Rocky Horror characters. If you, if you want to check it out, it's on the Home of Happiness YouTube channel. If you're a football player and you love your sport, then you should go and see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Imagine making a touchdown in garter belt and stockings. Wouldn't the crowd go wild? Wouldn't your mother go wild? Wouldn't you go wild? See the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parent. My name is Sean Stutler, and I am the producer and director of Rocky Horror Stay My Life, a documentary about the fans of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. When was the first time you saw Rocky Horror? I first saw Rocky Horror when I was 15 years old at the Crossroads Cinema in Merrillville, Indiana, a movie theater I would later come to own uh, seven years after I first saw Rocky Horror. Did they show Rocky Horror the whole time you were there? Actually, the theater closed down uh, for a short period of time, but when it came back, uh, my friend Ed Lipinski and myself decided to resurrect the Rocky Horror cast, and that was in, I believe, uh, the spring of 96. After that, it had uh, Rocky Horror there from uh, Scream 96 until I had to unfortunately close the doors in uh, October of 2006. What was your first time like? My first time at Rocky Horror was a very profound connection to uh, you know a, a tribe of people that I didn't realize I'd been looking for pretty much my entire life. Well, I mean, I imagine for some people, like you know, it's disconcerting and that it's not really their cup of tea. I get, I get it. And also, I got to say, there's probably some Rocky Horror shows out there that uh, don't really spark people's uh, imagination or really do it for anybody. That's fine. You know, uh, we've all uh, we've all seen bad performances, and that can certainly be said of Rocky Horror. But I think for the people who get it, the people who see Rocky Horror and immediately tune into it, they realize that, like, this is a community of people, not just a show, not just some, you know, uh, happening where people you know, goof off in front of a screen, but... It's a, a real community of people who you all of a sudden can plug into and be like, all right, I'm, I'm here with my people. Did you know pretty much immediately that this was your thing? Yeah, I, I feel like I'd been looking for Rocky Horror for a real long time. I, I was uh, kind of a jock. I was into sports and 
not because I liked them, but because like it was something to do after school and because I thought that's how you attracted women. But uh, when I went to Rocky Horror for the first time, even though I was on the football team, the wrestling team, the track and field team, you know, and I, I did stuff all through the summer, I dropped everything and uh, kind of, uh, radically changed uh, not only like, you know, how I behaved and how I looked, but like also just kind of my worldview and how I viewed other people. Were you ever part of a shadow cast? Oh, yeah. I have, uh, except for a very short period uh, between the time that the CrossFit Cinema closed down in uh, 1995 when it reopened in 96, and then a sh- another one month between when I closed uh, my, uh, when I closed the CrossFit Cinema, uh, when I owned it, and when I moved out to New Jersey to join the Home Happiness. Uh, I've been performing in the Rocky Horrorcast for 21 years. What was your character? It's changed over the years. I started out, the first thing a character I played was Rocky. And then for a very long time, you know, more than a decade, I played Brad almost exclusively. Uh, then when I went to the theater, I didn't really perform a whole lot for a while, but I was uh, a pre-show host, and i had been doing that like ever since the cast came back when the uh, theater closed down. More recently, uh, I switched or I went back to playing Rocky because uh, it was what was needed in my cast in Home of Happiness at a certain point, and uh, I decided I wanted to, you know, use that as a motivator, and I'd drop 30 pounds and. Uh, Try to really work out in order to encompass the character. Rocky Horse Saved My Life is a rather audacious title. How did you come up with it? I understand. It's an overstatement for a lot of people, but it's honestly the sentiment, like the most common sentiment that I heard among people who have, you know, spent some time in Rocky Horror. You know, like I said earlier, it's really like, you know, connect, connecting into like, you know, a tribe you didn't know you were looking for. And the most common aspect is that, like, you know, the, a lot of these people, you know, like, you know, who have really uh, devoted their lives to Rocky Horror just could not picture their lives, you know, if uh, Rocky Horror had not been at the right place at the right time. A lot of these people, you know, who find Rocky Horror, you know, to be like, you know, the answer. I think Rocky Horror has saved more li- lives than we realize, and it's certainly changed many more lives than we realize, my, my own included. When did you come up with the idea to do this? I had auditioned for the uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show Blu-ray that was released a few years ago, and uh, I made it into the uh, the finals uh, uh, for a little bit. Uh, and you can see me on the Blu-ray uh, auditioning and uh, sort of performing a little bit. But I, what I thought was going to be uh, finally, like you know, a look at the the culture of the Rocky Horror performer, um, was really sort of just a casting reel for how they were going to produce the picture in picture performance uh, of Rocky Horror being included on the Blu-ray and it didn't really go into the history of the of the fan community or our culture or really any of the things that have made Rocky Horror special for me for the past 20 plus years so I was kind of disappointed in that and I thought at that time like all right somebody like an actual fan has got to make a Rocky Horror documentary and since uh, the home happiness uh, and myself had become known for uh, producing Rocky Horror videos that were, you know, of a fairly high caliber, uh, I had an inkling that, you know, it would probably have to be us that did it. The Home Happiness and, you know, Larry, myself, Liz Bo, several other people who have really uh, put their efforts into the, promoting the Home of Happiness as uh, planners of Rocky Horror conventions. You know, we've also been able to produce some really uh, above-par videos, I think. And because, you know, a lot of us work in uh, TV and media, uh, we have access to, uh, you know, skills and, you know, equipment and stuff like that that other people don't. And we've used that for, on a small scale, for like music videos and promotional materials before, but we really haven't done a movie at, at this point. I'd, I'd already directed uh, a zombie film that was released in 2005 called Dead at the Box Office, 
and I had some other experience, you know, on uh, features and shorts. And I currently work in uh, television, so I knew that I had the skills in the background to make something like this happen. And after I saw that Kickstarter had become such a profound force in, uh, you know, funding creative things that were outside of the box, I saw a few friends have some success with it, and I realized that with the 40th anniversary coming up and the fact that Kickstarter has become so prominent, it was really time to uh, to make a move before someone else did and possibly uh, didn't do it justice. Tell me a little bit more about the Home of Happiness. Well, the Home of Happiness is a uh, Rocky Horror Shadow cast, for lack of a better term, performing cast that uh, is based out of Montclair, New Jersey. It started, you know, it's just a, you know, another, you know, uh, local Rocky Horror cast uh, that had the un- unfortunate position of uh, being located just outside of New York City. And really, you know, if you're going to come all the way, you know, like to Montclair, New Jersey, then you're going to probably just go out of New York City to see Rocky Horror. But uh, it enjoyed a good deal of success for some time, due in no small part to Larry Wiesel and his efforts in the national uh, Rocky Horror scene. Uh, Larry has produced several conventions even before I moved out here. And the Home of Happiness, you know, kind of got a a bit of a name for uh, being well-known in the Rocky Horror community. When I moved out here after closing down the Crossroads Cinema, specifically to join the Home of Happiness and kind of get a foothold in television uh, through connections here, we really wanted to uh, take it to the next level. And I really hate that cliche, but we, we wanted to step it up and help bring the Rocky Horror community's efforts into more of a professional realm. So we produced the ACO8 Atlantic City Rocky Horror Convention uh, that happened in 2008, and uh, it was at the House of Blues. We had a great performance in front of, like, you know, uh, close to 1,400 people. It was a really impressive show from a production standpoint because uh, before that, Rocky York conventions had mostly been confined to hotel ballrooms and smaller venues, things like that, unless it was like a Fox-sponsored convention. The fan conventions themselves were fairly small in scale. We really wanted to bring the Rocky York convention, you know, into the modern age and make it something that uh, set a new standard. That's kind of the great thing about the Rocky Horror uh, convention community is that, like, you know, at least once or twice a year, uh, the same group of people gets together because we're some of the only people that will understand each other and we can, you know, talk shop about uh, doing Rocky Horror and, you know, really get into the nerdy minutia, things like that. The same reason that anyone goes to a fan convention, really. Whereas most conventions are uh, fairly diverse, you know, in their in their fan base, like Rocky Horror is one of the few, you know, conventions out there that is specifically devoted to just one movie. Like, you know, it's not even a TV series, you know, it is just one film, not even a series, not a trilogy or anything like that, that so many people devote their lives to, which I think is really impressive. You know, like Star Wars at least had, it has six films now and soon it's going to have nine. And but Rocky Horror has had just one film. And unlike Star Wars, it's been constantly playing in movie theaters since 1976. So I think that's pretty impressive. Aren't you discounting shock treatment here? Yeah, because I, I don't think that anyone loves Rocky Horror because of shock treatment. I love shock treatment myself. I don't think anyone's going to Rocky Horror and be like, you know, this Rocky Horror thing, you know, it's cool, but you know what really makes it? Shock treatment. No, I mean, nobody thinks that. I mean, there's, I would say, the vast majority of people who would call themselves Rocky Horror fans might not even know that shock treatment exists. I didn't even know, like, for, I'd say, the first year or so that I was involved in Rocky Horror that there was a sequel. I thought someone was lying when they told me about it, uh, especially when I saw it. I'm like, how can this be the sequel to Rocky Horror? What's really sort of uh, interesting, though, I think, is that uh, when you look at at uh, shock treatment through um, the, the lens of reality television, which I think is kind of revisionist in, in some ways, 
But when you do that, it, it's really interesting, you know, that they were presaging a lot of the things that we would come to see in our own, you know, uh, media. We just hadn't, uh, you know, gotten there yet. Tell me more about your Kickstarter for Rocky Horror Saved My Life. What was the reaction to it, and how did the word get out? I came up with the idea for uh, our Kickstarter campaign in the summer of uh, 2013 because of the success of several of my friends in the Kickstarter uh, you know, realm and because you know, of the timing and the need that I felt for this sort of project. You know, we decided to launch the Kickstarter and announce it you know, with uh, our debut video for it at the uh, RKO convention in September of last year. And uh, that was a great place to, to kick it off. And we got a lot of people really excited about it. And I think it was before crowdfunding had really jumped the shark, which it possibly has now. So people were ready to dive all in. I, there were some fantastic people in the community who really probably gave more than they actually could afford, you know, or really stretched themselves financially in order to make donations that were extraordinarily generous happen. And I was, I was very touched and very impressed by, um, the number of people, you know, and uh, their their variety of backgrounds that they came from to really come out of the woodwork and support the campaign. So, you know, we launched it at the RKO convention. We tried to promote it at as many uh, local, you know, shows and, you know, uh, at, at our sister cast as possible. We, Facebook, you know, and all of our social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, they were really useful in getting the word out to people and also exposing people who might not have normally heard about it through the Rocky Horror Convention community to the fact that there was a community and that people were trying to organize it and make a documentary about it. So I really think we reached out to people who maybe had never made the connection that Rocky Horror was that fast or reaching. The most common response was, thank you for doing this, and I'm glad if anyone's going to do it that it was you guys. Because, like I said, in the Rocky Horror community, the home of happiness uh, had been known for the quality of our videos. Like we really tried to, you know, because we have the advantage of so many people being involved in the uh, film and television, we really uh, use that in order to uh, bring videos to the Rocky Horror scene that, you know, people hadn't seen before. Other casts are certainly follow suit. When you're talking about the quality of your videos, what kind of videos are we talking about here? We've done a lot of music videos and promotional videos uh, for uh, the Home of Happiness, also the conventions we run, theme nights. If you go to uh, our, the Home of Happiness YouTube channel, you can see a lot of these. Um, we've done them for uh, the song Shots. Tonight's going to be a good night. We did a promotional video uh, to the uh, Kill Bill trailer for our Kung Fu theme night, which I'm personally very proud of. So we, we tried to bring sort of a filmmaking aesthetics, you know, to uh, what are basically just fan videos, you know. Getting back to your initial fundraiser, you asked for 50K. Did that come about fairly quickly or were you sweating bullets at the end? Kickstarter and the way that it works and just the, the realities of dealing with the financial situation of people can be a bit misleading. While it is certainly true that we had raised $66,000 in donations or pledges, more accurately, on Kickstarter, that's not the amount of money that we took home. You know, that's not the amount of money that we had to produce the documentary. First off, of that $66,000, you have to expect and understand that uh, Kickstarter and Amazon payments take 10%. So that's 6600 you know, right away. Uh, and actually more like 6000 because, you know, not all of the payments cleared. So, you know, they take about 6000 and that takes us down to 60000 In addition to that nice chunk of change that's gone, there was also a good number of donations that did not clear uh, or did not process. So out of, you know, that 
than $66,000. There was also $13,000 worth of uh, donations that did not process. So in addition to the 10% that Kickstarter takes, with that uh, amount of um, transaction failure, uh, we actually only ended up taking back, um, I think, 48, close to $49,000. That brings us up to today where you're asking for completion funds. There's no denying that, like, you know, nearly $49,000, you know, is certainly a good deal of money. But anyone who's operated, you know, in media can tell you that, you know, gear and expenses add up really quickly. Even just taking a four-man crew, which is very small, you know, around the country, um, you know, each trip we go on, you know, costs between three to $5,000. Yeah, you know, so you can eat through that budget, especially after the purchase of the gear, you know, and um, various other, you know, expenses in order to even get the ball rolling. We blew through that Kickstarter money pretty quickly. I mean, $50,000, you know, even if you added the donations we made personally, $50,000 is not a lot to make a movie with, especially one that involves so much travel. You know, usually a $50,000 documentary would be on a local, like, you know, community outreach organization or something like that. You know, certainly not something where you're flying four guys all across the country in order to document the wide variety of the Rocky Horror experience. It's been pretty difficult, although we've really, uh, you know, made our way due to the you know, generosity of the fans on the road and the support we've seen and you know, our, our network of friends who are willing to support us as well. We're going into post-production very soon, and we want it to be as good as possible. And that's why we decided to launch a campaign on Indiegogo. In addition to that, we just heard so much from people that they hadn't heard about the Kickstarter campaign. And they really wanted to be able to get some of the rewards. They really wanted to be able to be a part of or say that they were part of it, you know, make sure their name got in the credits, that sort of thing. So it seemed like uh, the right time to launch a second campaign in order to, uh, you know, serve all of those people while also making sure that we had as many resources as possible going into post-production. What's it going to be like when I see this finished film? It's a little hard to say, you know, what's going to be ultimately, but basically we, it's going to be like a love letter to Rocky Horror. Um, Larry Wiesel and myself both, you know, kind of have really devoted ourselves far beyond, uh, you know, the, the average uh, fan to Rocky Horror and its promotion. You know, I mentioned that I owned the Crossroads Cinema and really ran the theater for the only reason to keep Rocky Horror alive in Northwest Indiana. I ended up going a quarter of a million dollars into debt in order to keep Rocky Horror alive in Indiana. Larry has lost countless thousands of dollars himself promoting Rocky Horror around here, running conventions, you know, supporting the fan community. We have a devotion to Rocky Horror that probably borders on an illness. It seemed only appropriate that we make a documentary to show why we love it. It's the whole experience. You know, Rocky Horror, you know, we've seen it be transformative in people's lives, and it, it was certainly transformative in ours, I think. There's almost a need to explain to people, like, no, look, this is why we're crazy about it. Like, it's not just a movie. It's the entire fan experience. It's the community. It's the creativity. Like, it, you know, it's the impetus for people to really, like, you know, contribute more to Rocky Horror. You know, like, there's so much uh, creative work has been done for Rocky Horror that has nothing to do with Richard O'Brien or any of the people who are in the movie. Just because people are, you know, fans of it. And, you know, I, I think that that's uh, pretty fascinating in itself. Come on, Sean. It's only a movie. It depends on, uh, you know, how you look at it and what experiences you have. It is only a movie. If you've seen Rocky Horror in the right place, it's not only a movie. It's also a performance. It's also human beings that spend hours and hours putting the costumes together and learning the minutia of uh, characters and, you know, movements that were done by people 40 years ago and since forgotten. That's one of the things that I think is really fascinating about Rocky Horror and the way that it relates to the celebrities is that, like, 
things that were just a reflex or an impulse 40 years ago become like, you know, almost biblical canon for other people, you know, and hundreds of other people decades later. And that's uh, bizarre and uh, I think unprecedented. Yeah, even looking at your Facebook page and seeing the 4711 on there, I kind of wonder how many people are going to get that. I mean, it's pretty obvious in the in the Rocky Horror uh, convention community, you know, but for the casual fan, you know, who knows? I mean, we ran a convention that was called 4711 and held it on April 7th, 2011. So, I mean, it's, it, it was a common enough reference to uh, get a whole promotional team behind that. But no, you're right. Yeah, the, the average Rocky Horror fan probably has no idea any of this goes on, and that's kind of what we want to expose them to. When you saw Rocky the first time, had it already come out on video? Yes, but just barely. Like, I was part of this generation that really was introduced to Rocky Horror through home video, although I didn't see it um, on home video for the first time myself. I saw it in the theater. Home video was really what sparked the renaissance in the early 90s uh, for Rocky Horror. It just really started to fade out, you know, into obscurity towards the late 80s, but was still quite hot in some pockets. The, the home video release really introduced an entirely new generation to it. I had thought that maybe it had kind of put the final nail in the coffin there. It depends on uh, what perspective you're looking at. As far as its experience as a, a cult phenomenon, as far as its experience as something that was uh, underground and uh, a bit taboo, yeah, yeah, it probably did if, if you ask people who were fans of it at that time. But for that sort of early 90s, you know, uh, Generation X uh, group who were introduced to Rocky Horror by the home video release. And, you know, it's and sort of the resurgence of, I think, 70s nostalgia, too. Without the Rocky Horror video, they never would have heard about it. You know, there's so many places in this country that didn't have access to a live performance of Rocky Horror, and all of a sudden, people could go and rent the video. And while I don't think they were getting the full experience, they could at least find out about it, and they could at least be fascinated with, like, you know, this movie, you know, as, you know, uh, as an object of art, as, as it were, even without, you know, the enhancement of live performance, which I think it is. What goes on at a Rocky Horror convention? Like many conventions, you know, excuse for people to come out, join, you know, uh, with their uh, fellow fans and, you know, celebrate something they love. Uh, as far as the actual activities, there's panels, you know, there's parties, there's uh, performances. Normally, uh, at most Rocky Horror conventions these days, uh, you perform Rocky Horror and Shock Treatment as, and do Shock Treatment as a full shadow cast because a Rocky Horror convention is probably one of the few places you can actually do that and find enough people to fill out the roles. In addition to that, you know, uh, there's usually screening of other videos, you know, pre-shows, uh, and pre-shows are like the special performances that go on before uh, the movie, like when you, uh, a cast does, say, a musical dance number or something like that. Or, you know, as we've tried to, like, you know, uh, yeah, promote, you know, in the Rocky Horror community, you know, uh, videos, both music videos and also long-form, you know, comedic videos, things like that. It's a lot of what you see at just about every other convention, but on a bit of a smaller scale because it's such a very specific fan spectrum. You know, it, it is just the people who are really into Rocky Horror. And then, and, and only then, only I'd say, you know, maybe half of uh, the Rocky Horror cast in the country are actually represented at these conventions because not everybody knows about them and not everyone's really connected to the scene. That's something we're also hoping to uh, rectify with this document documentary. Has anyone ever gone through and done a, some kind of anthropological survey of the different fan groups around the country and when they were founded, how long they lasted, and so on? 
Not to that extent. Um, there have been papers that are written have been written about Rocky Horror and sort of its sociological impact. But as far as like the anthropology of Rocky Horror cast and in various areas, to my knowledge, no. I honestly think that our documentary is one of the first projects that has ever even been able to look at Rocky Horror on a on a fairly wide yet personal scale. I know a few other people other than Larry and myself who have been to as many Rocky Horror casts now as we have. We've visited. 20 different casts this year, and we're still shooting. We've interviewed more than 300 fans in just about every corner of the country. It's going to be a fairly unique, you know, look at the Rocky Horror community, and I think uh, a historical resource, hopefully, you know, for people to, you know, be able to use and learn from, you know, down the line as well. So other than budget, which I know has to be a major hurdle, what has to be the biggest challenge you've had with this documentary? It all comes down to budget, you know, for the most part, because just about any problem can be solved with enough money. You know, so uh, it's it's always down to money. But as beyond that, it's all it's logistical issues. It's the fact that most of us, you know, most of my crew works a full time job, you know, Monday through Friday, and then you know we are shooting the documentary Friday night, all day Saturday, into Sunday, you know, and then commute, you know, you know, traveling home, you know, in order to wake back up at 6 a.m. and go to our jobs on Monday morning. Beyond that, you know, several of our crew have families, you know, and people that depend on them and, you know, that they need to take care of. So there's a lot of logistical hurdles, you know, involved with that. Beyond that, you know, just getting the theaters to uh, to sign on, you know, we have nothing really to offer them other than promotion, you know, and the fact that, you know, we want to make Rocky Horror a bigger phenomenon in the world than it is. Convincing them, especially the chain theaters, to cooperate and, you know, sign our location agreements and make sure, you know, like we have to prove them that we have our insurance and, you know, it. I can understand, like, you know, if you deal with Rocky Horror, you know, and view it as just a group of people who come into your theater every week and trash it, you probably don't put a lot of stock into someone coming along and saying, oh, I'm going to shoot a Rocky Horror documentary. Because, you know, chances are uh, they're just some jack-off, you know, uh, film student, you know, or maybe not even that. Larry and I, you know, are are not 19. You know, we've been doing Rocky, we've each been doing Rocky Horror for more than 20 years. So, uh, and we have some experience in producing uh, large-scale events and, you know, uh, and films, you know, videos, that sort of thing. So we really thought that we could uh, do justice to the fan community with this documentary. Other than that, I, I think that our biggest challenge in post-production is going to be uh, music, you know, in order, you know, working, you know, hopefully, you know, with uh, the right people to uh, bring the music of Rocky Horror to this documentary is going to be key. And that's why it's so important that, we have enough money to make the post-production process, you know, happen properly because uh, the the amount that we're asking for, $30,000 on our Indiegogo campaign, is really nothing. That could be, that could honestly be the rights for one song or, you know, or it could be maybe, you know, three or four, but it would barely, it, it certainly wouldn't purchase full soundtrack, you know, or necessarily the rights to anything um, comprehensive. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that uh, people necessarily realize, you know, how, overinflated uh, prices are, you know, in film, but it's certainly a challenge. Yeah, you might have to resort to hiring like a crackhead with a saxophone to play the time warp for you. You know, even playing someone else's composition, you still have rights you have to pay. Like, you know, that's, you know, you don't have to pay for that particular recording, you know, and that performance, but it's somebody else's intellectual property, so you still have to pay for it. How have you seen the Rocky experience kind of change over the years? When I was attending, the throwing of rice and toast or anything else really was banned by the theater. 
I think things have changed over the years, not necessarily in that way, you know, in regards to the physical props of audience participation, but that varies from theater to theater, I think, and region to region, depending on even just like some theaters just dealt with a, uh, a guy who was a real big jerk and, you know, caused a lot of damage, so they outlawed it. But I've been fortunate enough, all the, all the casts that I've been involved in have allowed the throwing of props, you know, you know, the full shebang, rice, toilet paper, toast. But I understand, like, at a certain point, you know, in the late 80s, like, you know, before the video release, a lot of people thought that you just went, rock, went to Rocky Horror to, to trash the place. They would throw hot dogs and eggs and, you know, lunch meat and, you know, <laughs> you know, various things like that. It looks like, you know, a Tex Avery cartoon when the audience was displeased with a performance, you know, it would just be a hail of vegetables, you know, from what I've heard. So I can understand why uh, theaters for a long time wanted to shy away from that. But I think it's, you know, it's an important part of the Rocky Horror experience. It's not essential necessarily, but I think that you're certainly missing something without it. I think that uh, the Rocky Horror, you know, as a phenomenon, you know, from the time that I uh, started going to Rocky Horror in the early 90s to today, the biggest change that I've seen in Rocky Horror is the production level, you know, of the cast that perform it. Um, whereas it was Rocky Horror was mostly manned by you know people in their late teens, early twenties, who were cobbling together costumes out of whatever they could find at the thrift store, and that's still largely the case for a lot of us. Rocky Horror costumes, you know, and production have certainly elevated to a near professional level in many cities. Uh, you know, now that we have like the Blu-ray and before that the DVD, you know, and even the VHS to some extent, people were able to really pick apart the minutia of the costumes. And, you know, a lot of people have put these resources online, people like uh, Ruth Finkwinter, Jamie Froming, Mina Credure, people who have uh, worked in the community to give people the tools and resources to put on the best Rocky Horror uh, picture show shadow cast possible, have done a lot of work, you know, to, uh, you know, you know, pass it along. They have improved the, the costuming of Rocky Horror on a national level, quite honestly. You know, people like even Larry Wiesel, like, you know, he... He produces both of uh, the specific fabric that Columbia wears off of her bustier because they don't really make the proper sequin fabric in the right colors, you know, for Columbia's bustier anywhere else. So he has a commission specially and then sells it by the yard. And, you know, he doesn't really make a huge profit on that, but he does it so that more people will have access to the proper materials. So the fact that the community has people who are willing to step up on an adult and professional level to uh, produce these sort of things has made a difference for so many people. Are the callbacks pretty much canon at this time, or do they differ by region or theater? Like the Bible, and uh, I think there's a lot of uh, you know uh, parallels between Rocky Horror and religion, but like the Bible, um, there's many variations, you know, and it's been changed a lot over the years. There's certain there's revisions all the time. I think you know seeing it in you know twenty different you know regions now, I would I would say that there's sort of a core there's sort of a core spine to artist participation, and that's probably the uh, audience participation album that was released in the eighties because that all, all of a sudden like you know you know there might have been a lot of uh, different very lines across the country, but once that was released, it sort of codified you know what people were supposed to yell, and all of a sudden you had people in like Nebraska yelling things about. New York City references to those local casts and everything that had no bearing on their lives, but they they heard it on the album. They thought that that's what you said. So um, I think a lot of it is informed by that. But there is a, a good degree of variation between uh, you know various regions of the country. And what I thought was fascinating, we went to Germany and uh, got to perform Rocky Horror out there, and 
They even do some of the physical props differently. They don't throw toilet paper when Dr. Scott enters because they don't have Scott's toilet paper over there. Instead, they throw toilet paper when Rocky Horror tears off his bandages because it looks like the bandages are going all over the theater. You know, they saw pictures of fans in the U.S. throwing toilet paper, and they made the logical-to-them correlation that, oh, you must throw the toilet paper when Rocky tosses off his bandages. Do you think the Internet has helped kind of codify the Rocky callbacks? I think the Internet has made communication between international Rocky Horror fans and among the entire, you know, even the national Rocky Horror community in the United States, such an incredible force. As far as the artist participation stuff goes, like, there's examples online, but there's even that doesn't change the fact that there are so many regional variations of what's funny and what's not funny. And that could even just be due to one individual who delivered the line really well. Even the most traditional of lines, you know, like, say, buy an umbrella, you cheap bitch, you know, which was anecdotally the first line that was ever yelled, you know, uh, by uh, Louis Faris, you know, at uh, the Waverly. That might not be popular at your theater. You know, who knows? It might be a, a, a total variation on it. The Rocky Horror traditions are sort of passed down, uh, you know, orally, you know, and socially. So a lot of people hear about them from stuff online, but a lot more people just are handed these traditions from people that they learned it from and who learned it from people before them. There's a whole lot of cats in the Southwest that wear purple spacesuits. I've asked a lot of people, and they can't really tell me why, but they, it's just that some people did it, and then it spread to other cats. So for whatever reason, all these cats now from California to Arizona wear purple spacesuits, even though that's not what they wear in the movie. But And it might be screen accurate in just about every other way, but there's the tradition of purple spacesuits that endures to this day. So when can people expect to see Rocky Horror Save My Life? Well, we'll be premiering it at the 40th anniversary Rocky Horror Commission, which is uh, scheduled for the weekend of September 26th in 2015. Uh, so, yeah, we've got a pretty hard deadline because we're going to be unveiling it at the convention in front of uh, probably the people who will be our, our harshest critics, uh, the Rocky Horror community. It's a bit intimidating, but uh, I think that we've got a good head start on it. We've already got a ton of footage, and uh, as we after we finish up with our Rocky Horror schedule here in October, we're going to be going into post-production and... Uh, put the nose of the grindstone to get through hundreds of hours of footage over the course of a few months. Luckily, three out of four of the people who are producing this documentary, you know, are both, you know, shoot video and edit. So both myself, you know, as, and, um, Paul Delarge, you know, who, uh, is plays Frankenfurter. Uh, he's also, you know, one of our shooter producers and edits as well as does Boo Stewart, you know, who, uh, was not originally affiliated with a, a Rocky Horror cast, but was a friend of mine and had done uh, a news piece on the home of happiness for a local cable channel. And we really got Boo, you know, involved in the culture and especially like, you know, sort of that, that journalistic look at the Rocky Horror community uh, that they found so fascinating. So we've got three people who can shoot and edit and which is good because we're usually shooting with three cameras all at the same time. So, we can all edit our own footage, put the best of it together, and uh, you know, find what's going to work best for the documentary. Where can people go to find out more about the documentary and to help out? We have a URL, www.rockyhorrorsavemylife.com. Currently, that directs to our Indiegogo campaign, where people can make donations and receive uh, perk rewards, such as T-shirts, posters, postcards, buttons, patches, special thanks, and even associate producer credits you know, in the movie, depending on how much you're willing to spend. So that's really the first place to go. Uh, in addition to that, you can uh, look up Rocky Horror Save My Life on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr. 
we're we're pretty much all over the place. Only the throttling of our reach, you know, by certain uh, corporations uh, prevents us from really being ubiquitous in uh, everyone's social media feed every day. Well, I got to say, Mike, you know, it's astounding. Time is fleeting. And it's time to wrap up the show. So listen very closely. Not for very much longer. Yeah, that's right. You know, I want to thank the special guests, Sal Puro, Larry Weisel, Sean Stuttler, Scott Michaels, and Jeffrey Weinstock for all coming on and talking to us about their love of Rocky Horror and their various projects they have and books and film and all that stuff. Of course, you can find links to all of that, these fine projects from these fine gentlemen over at our website, projection-booth.com. And, um, you know... We hope you've enjoyed our hospitality. Your horse brutality? And that too. We hope you head over to iTunes and uh, give us some stars. And also, would the last person listening please turn out the globe?
pants around in my underwear And if you're disabled, then take up your pants And to the time warp is what we'll all dance Don't dream it, just be it, it's what they all say So shut the fuck up and start living that way Here at the show, I need you to see That you can be whoever you want to be La 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 la, la 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 So 
Dissit well giving readings, 14 Moscow Road. Osbert giving champagne parties, Sashi's got the cold. Gertrude's hanging pictures, Alice making tea. Me, I do the only thing that still makes sense to me. I do the round. Sometimes they make love and art inside the Dakota. Rodney's feeling sexy, Mick is really frightfully bold. Me, I do the only thing that stops me going old. I do the rock. I do the rock, rock. I do the rock, rock, rock. Well, it's Bogwai prison Nietzsche six feet under But this baby still got rhythm Einstein celebrating Ten decades But I'm afraid philosophy Is just too much responsibility For me I do the round
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.